Hello, and welcome to Autocracy Now. In this episode, Stalin transforms the Soviet economy. We left off last time with Stalin essentially in control of the Soviet Union. Lenin had died, and subsequently, Stalin had started off on the process of deifying him, treating him like a god for political purposes, idolising his memory, and encouraging his personality cult. Now, Lenin himself actually predicted this. He said, quote, After their death, Attempts are made to convert revolutionaries into harmless icons, to canonise them, so to say, and to hallow their names to a certain extent for the consolation of the oppressed classes, and with the object of duping the latter. End quote. So he knew exactly what Stalin was about, but of course this was one of the many things that people never talked about. By 1927, Trotsky, Zinoviev and Kamenev, some of his key rivals, had been expelled from positions of power and authority in the party. Stalin was clearly in the ascendancy, and had begun to install his cronies in positions of power. Civil war and unrest had died down significantly. The economy was gradually recovering from their devastating effects. Russia, for once, seemed to be in some kind of equilibrium, which, in Russian history of this time period, usually means that it's time for some kind of wrecking ball to come in and destroy everything. The Mountain Goats wrote a brilliant song, Heel Turn 2, about a move or a theatrical performance in professional wrestling, where tag teams are often used. A heel turn is when a wrestler who was previously part of one side switches sides suddenly and without warning. I'm not saying that Stalin was a pro wrestler, but almost as soon as Stalin was sure that he had seen off the united opposition, he executed a perfect heel turn, and started to denounce the NEP. Having aligned himself with the right wing of the party, represented by Bukharin and fellow Politburo members Rykov and Tomsky, and united by their general support of the NEP, this was something of a surprise. Now the NEP, or the New Economic Policy, had been a success story. Under it, the Soviet economy had returned to the state it was before the Great War. Now that doesn't sound like a fantastic achievement, but it must be remembered that in that time they suffered a terrible military defeat by the Germans, then an intense civil war and revolution, and accompanying famines and diseases that killed millions. The fact that only three or four years after the fighting had stopped, the economy had returned to some semblance of what it was before the disaster was a major achievement. But the pace of change of industrialization brought on by the NEP was too slow for Stalin and other leading Bolsheviks. This was for a few reasons. The Bolsheviks wanted to modernise the country, partly out of the idealism of socialism, and, and partly so that Russia could defend herself in future wars. You also need to remember that their Marxist philosophy, where everyone is basically either a bourgeois landowner or an urban worker, had little room for Russia's agricultural economy, and so they needed Russia to become an industrial nation, and quickly, so that the revolution could go ahead. Stalin found his excuse to abandon the NEP with a grain crisis in 1927. Under the NEP, there was a small degree of capitalism, and so the government procured grain from the peasants while allowing them to sell off a surplus. But in 1927, the amount the government could obtain fell dramatically. A lot of this was down to Bolshevik meddling in the economy. While Bukharin and others supported the NEP, at least for now, for them it was always a temporary compromise, a little dose of capitalism to ease the transition into socialism. So the Bolshevik right wing tried to move gradually towards the centralised government control that they really wanted, and they did this by buying up flour mills and artificially lowering the price that they paid for grain. But the net result of the price fixing was just the disruption of the economy that led to the grain crisis, which in many ways gave Stalin just the chance he needed to execute his heel turn. The softly, softly approach was over. This was begun in a trip to the farming regions of Siberia on Russia's famous Trans-Siberian Railway. Now, incidentally, there's a famous story, although it's probably untrue, that the railway itself had a vast kink in it because the Tsar, when he drew the line on the map to denote where the railway was going to be, used a ruler with a little nick in it. Everyone, so the story goes, was too afraid of him to correct this error and proceeded to build the railway complete with kink. This is an anecdotal evidence about the perils of absolute power that goes unquestioned, and see in the dictionary under Stalin for more evidence of that. 
So, Stalin personally went to Siberia, had a brief look around, maybe had some awkward conversations with the girls he'd met while he was exiled there, and then blamed the grain crisis on kulaks, the wealthy class of peasants who sold their surpluses. They were hoarders, they were capitalists, and they were anti-Bolshevik, so Stalin had them rounded up and arrested en masse. Obviously, Stalin had no interest in genuinely resolving the crisis, but instead using it as an excuse to tighten control over the peasants. Or perhaps it just shows us the inherent paranoia of so many of the Bolsheviks. Failures are not down to accidents or bad policy, or even bad fortune. Everything is always sabotage. In the Kulaks, Stalin had an enemy to demonise. Volgokhanov, in his biography Stalin, Triumph and Tragedy, which interestingly was published just around the time the Soviet Union fell, points out that this was the only time that Stalin visited an agricultural region. He knew nothing of the lives of the peasants and the way that a bad harvest could make grain harder to obtain. Montefiore describes the pivot this way. Quote, Stalin was a natural radical and now he shamelessly stole the clothes of the leftists he had just defeated. He and his allies were already talking of a new final revolution, the great turn leftwards to solve the problem of the peasantry and economic backwardness. These Bolsheviks hated the obstinate old worlds of the peasants. They had to be herded into collective farms, their grain forcibly collected and sold abroad to fund a malic gallop to create an instant industrial powerhouse that could produce tanks and planes. Private trade of food was stopped. Kulaks were ordered to deliver their grain and prosecuted as speculators if they did not. The villagers themselves were forced into collectives. Anyone who resisted was a Kulak enemy. End quote. In collectivization, the model of the peasantry as small-scale farmers who ate some of what they produced on their land and sold the surplus, or more often had their food requisitioned, was replaced. Farmers were deprived of their land, their animals, their equipment, and forced to work on larger collective farms. Now, the idea behind this was that there could eventually be mechanised farms, and they could be farmed more efficiently with tractors, growing the industrial as well as the agricultural economy, which is more difficult to do when everyone owns their own plot of land. But of course, in effect, the state was depriving the peasants of what little property they had. Collectivization was a forced process, with the volunteers such as 25,000ers from industrial cities, forcing families to move onto collective farms. The overall food supply might have eventually been increased by abandoning these inefficient methods, but it was clear that this was not for the benefit of the peasants, who would own nothing. In effect, the Soviet state was attempting to reduce them back to a sort of red serfdom, with tight government controls and little private ownership. Montefiore quotes a young activist, Lev Kopolev, who took part in the grain raids that began the early part of collectivization. He says, quote, I was scouring the countryside, searching for hidden grain. I emptied out old folk storage chests, stopping my ears to the children's crying and the women's wails. I was convinced that I was accomplishing the great and necessary transformation of the countryside. End quote. Those accused of being kulaks were divided into three categories. The first were shot straight away by a local branch of the secret police. The second were deported to Siberia with their property confiscated. And the third group were evicted from their homes and used as forced labour locally. A young lady from one of the collectivised villages provides a harrowing tale. In the interview which Orlando Fiege conducted and which you can access online, Antonina Golovina, whose father was arrested as a kulak, described what his life was really like. She would wake up at two or three in the morning to find him downstairs, doing odd jobs after a full day in the field harvesting grain. You know, these weren't the wealthy kulaks that Stalin portrayed them to be. This was what was necessary for families like hers to make ends meet, and by modern Western standards we'd think they're barely struggling to get by and yet they were still demonised as wealthy slackers and saboteurs. In reality, the reason he was called a kulak was because their family was just envied by others in the village for some reason or another. Just as during the Red Terror, the trigger-happy zealotry of local party officials provided a really great way for you to get revenge on people you didn't like. Just accuse them of being a kulak and, hey presto, problem solved. In Antonina's village, some of the more unscrupulous and jealous villagers became keen Komsomol activists, tasked with tracking down kulaks. 
They used to regularly enter her house and torment her father, accusing him of plotting against Soviet power, even as he tried to reason with them. One exchange grew heated and the party activist, who was just the head of a local family, said, quote, I killed your brother and got away with it, I can have you killed as well. Her father lost control of this and attacked the man. For that, he was caught up in dekulakization, arrested and sentenced to five years in the gulag. Antonina herself was deported to a new school, where even the teachers had no mercy. She recalls, And all of a sudden she started yelling at us, saying, You enemies of the people, wretched kulaks, you deserve to be deported. I hope you're all exterminated. Of course, we were all silent when she started calling us all sorts of things. And in the end, she just sent us home. I think it's really important to read some of these interviews because it's just fascinating to see how people look back on their lives and on so many things that seem unthinkable to us now, but that must have been normal then based on the way they discuss them. There is a terrible irony in discussing the human cost of these policies. The irony lies in the use of statistics. Of course, Stalin is supposed to have said that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. I don't know if he actually said it, but it certainly sums up his attitude pretty well. When I want to explain the magnitude of the disruption caused by the five-year plans, that between four and six million kulaks were deported, arrested or executed, for example, I'm falling into the same trap that the Soviet leaders did. Individuals become replaced by statistics in some vast behemothic machine. Targets and numbers are everything. The reality behind what it means to have so many million tonnes of steel, or 80% of the farms collectivised in a year in the Ukraine, this is as unimaginable to me as it was to Stalin and others in the Politburo, who were divorced from the reality on the ground. I imagine, I hope, that it's unimaginable for most of you, as it is for me, to have agents of the government come to your home, accuse you of hoarding food, steal your possessions, break up your family, deport your father, your brother, your son. Stalin's comment on the policy of dekulakization: when the head is cut off, no one wastes tears on their hair. We can't comprehend the numbers. There was divorce from reality as the Soviet planners who dreamed of utopia and wrote down their dreams of 200% increases in production. There is far from a true understanding of the problem as Stalin was when he scribbled on his notepad, what is a kulak? There was vast disruption in the countryside, not only the general chaos that occurred due to the rapid pace at which collectivization was forced on the peasants, but also due to passive resistance among the farmers. Collectivization looked an awful lot like requisition to them. Many peasants viewed the Soviet government as the Antichrist, and, after all, at the same time as collectivizing the farms, they were fighting their culture battle and attacking the churches, closing them down and seizing their property. If you were superstitious and politically unaware, it would look like the end of days. Better, then, to resist in any way you can, so there are stories of families destroying what little they possessed rather than letting it fall into the hands of the communists, or refusing to work on the new collective farms they'd been forced towards. Farm animals were killed, seized, or simply starved in the absence of anyone to feed them, or anything to feed them with. It would take until the 1950s for the number of farm animals in the USSR to return to the levels before collectivization started. Now, the initial disruption was so dreadful and had such a negative impact that Stalin was forced to backtrack. He had the gall to publish this temporary halt to collectivization as an article under the title Dizzy with Success. Stalin wrote, The Soviet government's successes in the sphere of the collective farm movement are now being spoken of by everyone. Even our enemies are forced to admit that the successes are substantial, and they really are very great. But the successes have their seamy side, especially when they're attained with comparative ease, unexpectedly, so to speak. Such successes sometimes induce a spirit of vanity and conceit. We can achieve anything. There's nothing we can't do. People not infrequently become intoxicated by such successes. They become dizzy with success, lose all sense of proportion and the capacity to understand realities. They show a tendency to overrate their own strength and to underrate the strength of the enemy. 
Adventurous attempts are made to solve all questions of socialist construction in a trice. It cannot be said that these dangerous and harmful sentiments are widespread in the ranks of our party, but they do exist in our party, and there are no grounds for asserting that they will not become stronger. And if they should be allowed free scope, there can be no doubt that the collective farm movement will be considerably weakened, and the danger of its breaking down may become a reality. So Stalin's willing to accept that he's done something wrong, but in classic Stalin fashion, it is, we were just far too good at what we were doing. He later blames the false collectivization on overzealous underlings. You just didn't explain it properly. But Stalin's apparent softening was just a temporary concession to political reality. He was a master of the temporary political retreat, followed by the subtle intensification of previous policies as time went on. Consider the dramatic series of fake resignations that he'd offered to Lenin whenever he didn't get his own way. In reality, despite the letter, collectivization didn't slow in pace. Widespread coercion was expanded. Between 1930 and 1, even after Dizzy with success, the percentage of farms that were collected farms doubled. If you had to use one word to describe Stalin's economic policy after this great heel turn when the NEP was abandoned, it would be force. Everything was to be done by force. The rhetoric became more brutal and vigorous than before. In a famous speech, Stalin said, quote, No, comrades, the pace must not be slackened. On the contrary, we must quicken it as much as within our powers and possibilities. To slacken the pace would mean to lag behind, and those who lag behind are beaten. The history of old Russia was that she was ceaselessly beaten for her backwardness. She was beaten by the Mongol Khan, she was beaten by the Turkish Bays, she was beaten by the Swedish feudal lords, she was beaten by the Polish-Lithuanian pans, she was beaten by Anglo-French capitalists, she was beaten by Japanese barons, she was beaten by all for her backwardness. We are 50 or 100 years behind the advanced countries. We must make good this lag in 10 years. Either we do it, or they crush us. Notice that there's no mention of the socialist dream of a utopian society with equality for all, but instead we've in fact moved away from that internationalism and towards a sort of Russian patriotism. Stalin is talking about himself like he's a new modern czar, that he is going to revolutionise old Russia. But there's nothing about the socialist state, it's all about competing with the capitalists. Alongside the persecution of the peasants and the seizing of the grain, in 1928, Stalin unveiled the economic policy that would replace the NEP, the first five-year plan. In the cities and industrial zones, the five-year plan was defined by targets. There were overall targets, some of which seemed wildly optimistic. Stalin demanded, for example, that production of coal should double, the production of iron should triple, the production of electricity should increase by 330%. To achieve this, every factory and every worker had their own individual targets. Every day, you'd go to work and find vast display boards listing the targets for every worker and for the factory overall. Any worker who failed to meet their industrial output targets was singled out for criticism and humiliation. If you continued to fail or tried to avoid showing up for work, you'd usually be accused of sabotage. Sentences varied. Usually this type of saboteur wasn't executed, but instead they'd be sent away to be a forced labourer, which I suppose in some ways wasn't that different to what they were being forced to do at the moment. Vast public work projects like the Dnieper Dam and a railway between Turkey and Siberia were started. Alongside this, there was a vast expansion in repression. The secret police, now called the NKVD, set up a vast network of gulags, the forced labour camps to which all of the kulaks were deported. Millions of workers were detained in forced labour camps, and they became an integral part of the Soviet economy. The target culture began to pervade the entire system, set up by a vast bureaucracy that was often completely divorced from the reality on the ground. The central planning agency, Gosplan, essentially just drew up numbers. Stalin demanded a 110% increase in coal production, 200% increase in iron production, 235% increase in electric power. That's what they had to do. 
The plan insisted that the USSR should produce so many million tons of coal, so many million tons of steel, etc. No account was made for any natural economic variation or the laws of supply and demand. This was a centrally planned economy. The machines and new factories that would be required to fulfil these targets would be paid for by the export of grain collected from the peasants. Stalin said in a letter to Molotov, one of his key allies, Force the export of grain to a maximum. This is the core of everything. Targets were inextricably linked with Soviet propaganda. The idea of a Soviet economic miracle was paramount. Marxism-Leninism was such a perfect theory that it would surely produce this miracle. So targets were constantly being revised upwards. Individual factories and officials were constantly reporting them as being overfulfilled and proudly presenting surpluses. In the end, the central planners would declare that the first five-year plan had been fulfilled in just four years. As to whether it was really a success... Production increased, there's no doubt about that, and quite often in astonishing ways. Electricity production did nearly triple, iron production went up by 50%, production of coal and oil also nearly doubled, although it's very difficult to know given that the official figures probably are exaggerated by a great deal to ensure that everything was above target. Stalin himself would probably argue that, had the rapid industrialisation not occurred, the USSR could not have assembled the vast war machine that resisted the Nazi invasion in 1941, and a lot of people, even in Russia today, agree with him. But of course, any centrally planned system was really very wasteful. Often the raw materials that were produced would just sit around in warehouses, with the machinery to use them not yet constructed. Draconian directives aimed at producing raw materials meant that many sectors of the economy were neglected and grew more slowly, especially those that refer to consumer goods and quality of life. You can't really have that when the focus is on iron, oil, steel, coal. And any economic gains that were made always came at an immense human cost. Beyond the millions of slave labourers who built the new cities, of whom 100,000 died building the Bellamore Canal alone, there were millions more ordinary workers who lived under the constant fear of being arrested or deported if they made mistakes, or failed to fulfil quotas. Real wages for industrial workers, whose revolution, after all, this was supposed to be, actually fell during the first five-year plan. The economic development was heavily unbalanced. On the face of it, there were some truly remarkable achievements, but they came at a terrible cost. Alongside the first five-year plans creating radical economic change in the USSR, there was a Stalinist drive to change the culture. Religion, for example, was seen as a symbol of Russian's backwardness that Stalin had so railed against. Now, they weren't subtle in the way they went after religion, because the organisation that did it was called the League of the Militant Godless. This was a volunteer organisation filled with party members and young Komsomol activists, funded by Stalin, and it underwent all kinds of activities aimed at exterminating religion, especially in the countryside. The League was like the Bolshevik party in miniature, Even amongst themselves, they were constantly suspicious that they were being infiltrated and undermined by people secretly harbouring religious beliefs, and they'd discuss their concerns about fellow members. Propaganda that trumpeted scientific achievements and atheist views, and attacked religion as backwards and religious organisations as enemies of the state was disseminated, and the League was involved in the arrest and often execution of bishops and priests, who were viewed as obstacles to the New World Order. Because, after all, they were people who could be listened to, who spoke with a higher authority than the party. To quote the group itself, All religions, no matter how much they renovate and cleanse themselves, are systems of the idea, profoundly hostile to the idea of socialism. Religious organisations are in reality political agencies, of class groupings hostile to the proletariat. End quote. So this is a fairly familiar idea that religion is the opiate of the masses, as Marx would have said. It's an instrument of control, class warfare, but at the same time, if you go after religion, it's profoundly against the people who believe in that religion. And we will see later on that Stalin has to concede on this policy at certain times in his reign. 
1931, the League of the Militant Godless had 5.5 million members. They also made it a priority to remove religious icons from the homes of believers. By 1940, over 100 bishops, tens of thousands of Orthodox clergy, and thousands of monks and lay believers had been killed or died in Soviet prisons in the Gulag. Their slogan was the Storming of Heaven. So this was a far cry, then, from the choir boy of Gory and Tiflis spiritual seminary where Stalin had grown up. Their assault on religion is indicative of the twin approach of the Soviet regime, destroying any organisation that might dissent and replacing existing power structures with their own versions. Stalin and the Bolsheviks were culture warriors. To establish their paradise, the destruction and replacement of all the old order had to be achieved. Perhaps with just a shade of the old poet from his high school days showing, Stalin took a special interest in the literary arts. Writers were no longer just writers, however. They were engineers of the human soul. Stalin, displaying his classic micromanagement tendencies, would personally read and correct manuscripts from the Union of Soviet Writers. Eventually, he had a set of pet writers that were producing pro-Soviet propaganda pieces that glorified the state and socialism. Yet, interestingly, censorship was not always absolute. Take the example of Mikhail Shokolov, who became a prominent writer in the Soviet canon and frequently met with Stalin. He wrote a novel, The Virgin Soil Upturned, about the policy of collectivization, and, while it was broadly supportive of the policy's aims, it did not always shy away from some of the more brutal realities of it. Shokolov had a conscience. Robert Service remarks, Shokolov was not a servile hack. He was horrified by what he witnessed in the countryside, as many Cossacks were brutally herded into collective farms. Repeatedly, he wrote to Stalin pointing this out. As famine grew in southern Russia, the correspondence became heated. Sholokov's letters testified to his courage. Stalin's engagement with him signals a recognition that loyalist intellectuals provided a useful function for him by raising difficult questions without ever threatening his political position. Stalin would never allow a politician to get away with such impertinence. End quote. Maxim Gorky was another novelist who frequently visited Stalin. Broadly speaking, we think he was duped into believing the Soviet propaganda about constructing a better society, and he even wrote glowing prose about events like the construction of the White Sea Canal, which we now know was a humanitarian disaster. In return, Gorky was granted a large literary allowance and lived in luxury, with a mansion in Moscow, a dacca outside the capital, and a villa in the Crimea. Gorky provided the regime with intellectual cover, writing in Pravda, If the enemy does not surrender, he must be exterminated. The enemy he referred to was the hated Kulaks. Stalin's personal literary tastes often came into conflict with what he thought was good for the regime. For example, from his school days, he loved Dostoevsky, but censored his works because they were bad for the young people. He personally admired the works of satirists like Zoshenko, who mocked Soviet bureaucracy, and would read them to his children, remarking with a brutal sense of humour, Here's where the author remembered the secret police and changed the ending. Incidentally, Stalin's own poetry was censored until late on in his life. This is likely due to its sympathy with Georgian nationalism, more than due to its flowery imagery that might have been a bit embarrassing. By 1932-3, the policy of collectivization and the mismanagement of resources had reached critical point in the Ukraine and the surrounding areas. The Soviet authorities procured a falling amount of grain from the region, and so they restricted the rations that were given to the Ukrainians by the state. The result was one of the most appalling events in modern history, a widespread famine known as the Holodomor. Many people, especially those who were affected, believed that this man-made famine was an intentional weapon of war by the Soviet state to destroy Ukrainian nationalism in particular, and to break the will of the peasants more generally. Stalin himself accused the peasants of launching a war of starvation against the state by withholding grain. And really, what has he done so far that makes you think he wouldn't use those tactics himself? As the people starved, no attempt was made by the authorities to alleviate the situation. They continued to collect enough grain to fill their quotas for export. 
It was exported and sold abroad in order to pay for the rapid industrialisation Stalin demanded. In 1932-3, according to Michael Ellman, enough grain was exported by the Ukraine alone to feed 5 million people for a year. Half of that grain was exported long after the authorities had received reports of famine. Given those facts, it seems there's no question that the famine could have been prevented if it was a priority for the Soviets. Again, you can get obsessed with statistics. No one can agree on the exact numbers of deaths due to the lack of official records and attempted cover-up. All scholars agree, however, that millions of people died from the famine. But I'm not going to go with statistics, and instead I'm going to read out some first-hand accounts from people who were there. Here's one. On March 28, 1933, we were shocked by the news that Miron Yemets and his wife Maria had become cannibals. Having cut off their children's heads, they salted them away for meat. The neighbours smelled meat frying and the smoke coming from their chimney, and, noticing the absence of children, went into the house. When they were asked about the children, the parents began to weep and told the whole story. The perpetrators of this act said that they would have children again, otherwise they would die in great pain, and that would be the end of the family. Chairman Boyko arrested them himself, and about six hours later, the police came to question them. Who has so cunningly persuaded you to do this? You know that this is the work of our enemies, to cast dishonour upon our country, the Soviet Union, the most advanced country in the world? You have to tell us who did it. Hoping to save themselves in this way, the accused pointed to Pablo Litvinenko, who was supposed to have said, If you have nothing to eat, butcher the children and eat them. Litvinenko was arrested and shot as an example to the others. Myron and Maria were sentenced to ten years in prison. However, they were shot about three months later because the Soviet government was ashamed to let them live. At the end of March or the beginning of April, a big department store was opened in Hadyach on Polyevsk Street by the park across the street from Lenin's monument. It was called Torksin. Stocked very well, even with goods from abroad, it had one fault, that of selling only for platinum, gold, silver or precious stones. The prices were, for 10 gold rubles, one could buy their 17 pounds of bread, 22 pounds of buckwheat cereal, 6 and 2 third pounds of millet and 10 herrings. As soon as people had learned about this, all who had any gold or silver flocked to the city. There was a line, eight abreast and a third of a mile long, in front of the store. There were always 50 to 70 people who could not get in before the store closed for the day. They spent their nights on the sidewalk, disregarding cold, storm or rain. Thefts were very common, but most died from hunger or stomach cramps after eating too much and too greedily the food they bought. The corpses were removed every morning by a police truck. I also stood in line with my mother. There I saw with my own eyes ten dead being thrown onto the truck like so many logs, and in addition three men that were still alive. The dead were hauled to Hilboki Yar, deep ravine, and dumped there. The department store had its good and bad sides. The Russians robbed the people of practically all the gold they had. On the other hand, it saved many people's lives because six to eleven pounds of grain saved one from starving to death. Those who had no gold for food dropped like flies, or went to the cemeteries in search of corpses. The most critical point was reached just before the harvest. More and more people starved to death each day. Everything was eaten that could be swallowed. Dogs, cats, frogs, mice, birds, grass, but mostly thistles, which were delicious if the plants were about 15 inches high and cleaned of spines. Many people went to graze, and often died in the grazing fields. The Soviet elite were fully aware of what was going on, and they were callous about it. Stalin wrote in a letter to Kogonovich, The Ukraine has been given more than it should get. When officials began reporting the famine to Stalin, he said to one of them, They tell us you're a good speaker, but it transpires you're a good storyteller too, fabricating such a fairy tale about famine. You thought you'd scare us, but it won't work. Perhaps you should leave the Ukrainian Central Committee and join the Reuters Union. You'll concoct fables and fools will read them. End quote. 
but the physical evidence of the famine was undeniable. As Stalin and his fellow elites went on luxury trains to holiday at their dakas, they could see the result of the policies dreamed up in Kremlin offices. One of Stalin's allies wrote, Looking at the people from the windows of the trains, I see very tired people in old worn clothes, and our horses are skin and bone. Here is Ayana Tuchinyuk's account of the death of her neighbour's six-year-old son, Mityo. Yana was born in 1905 in the village of Subotiv in the Chichen region. Quote, he was on his way to the kindergarten one morning when the collective farm was distributing a serving of millet meal the size of a matchbox, and he dropped by begging, Auntie, give me a piece of bread, I'm so hungry. I didn't give him any because I was mad at him for eating the greens I'd planted in the garden. To the day I die I will not forgive myself for begrudging the child a piece of bread. In the evening, on our way from home from work, we found him sitting up in the middle of the footpath, dead. He was probably returning from the kindergarten, had got tired, sat down and died. Antonina Polishchuk, born in 1925. She lived in the village of Bukata in the Likansky region. In 1933, our mother pretended to sew some dolls for the children, filling them with grain so that they would not take all the grain away from us. But they found the grain even there and seized it. They took our ox away and killed it, taking the meat for themselves. Tetiana Vodichensko, born in 1911, lived in the same village. It happened that they took people who were still alive and would throw them into common graves. This happened with Kochina Revenko. When they came to her house, she was still alive. They started dragging her by the feet. Where were you pulling me to? Give me a beat. I'm hungry. I still want to live. She was young, not yet 30. You think we're going to come back for you tomorrow? Growled the men in response, pulling her onto a cart by her feet. They brought her to the gravesite and threw her inside. She did not fall on her back, but propped up in a sitting position, her back against the side. They poked at her head, and she finally fell back. Stepanidia Hodorovina, born in 1905 from the village of Shabianko in the region by the same name. She said, In 1933, my neighbour lured my daughter to my house, killed her with a knife and ate her. My daughter was all of six years old at the time. When the beast was seized and taken to prison, she kept taking out slices of meat and eating them, saying, Mmm, how tasty. Had I known, I would have killed her earlier. The police could not tolerate this any longer, and they shot her right there on the road. Timothy Snyder wrote in his book Bloodlands, summarising the Holodomor. Quote, Survival was a moral, as well as a physical struggle. A woman doctor wrote to her friend in June 1933 that she had not yet become a cannibal, but was not sure that I shall not be one by the time my letter reaches you. The good people died first. Those who refused to steal or to prostitute themselves died. Those who gave food to others died. Those who refused to eat corpses died. Those who refused to kill their fellow man died. Parents who resisted cannibalism died before their children did. End quote. Years later, Stalin had a conversation with Churchill where he described this. He said, We took the greatest trouble explaining collective farms to the peasants. It was no use arguing with them. It was all very bad and difficult, but necessary. Many of them agreed to come in with us, but the vast bulk were unpopular and were wiped out by their labourers. End quote. Rewriting history is easy enough when you don't have to live through the worst of it yourself. Stalin and his allies sat in offices, scrawling memos, divorcing themselves from the reality of the implementation of their idealistic policies. In reality, they were betraying the ideals of fairness and equality that socialism espoused. Whether it was to establish their paradise, or simply to maintain a hold on power, they were willing to accept any cost. It's just that it would fall to others to pay that price for them. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you've enjoyed Autocracy Now, please leave us a review or rate us on iTunes. I know that everyone always says this, but it's the best way to get us noticed, without me having to stand on my roof with a megaphone 24-7.
You can visit our website at www.autocracynow.wordpress.com or www.autocracynow.libsyn.com. You can email the show at autocracynow.outlook.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and even donate to the show if you like. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. Next episode, I'm going to loop back around and deal with the developments in Stalin's personal and political life between 1929 and 33, as the vast economic and social changes in the Soviet Union were taking place. Now, the times were so complicated and we have so much detail about them that I don't feel I can combine everything into a chronological narrative. So keep in mind that as these personal events occur, the political occur at the same time. Which is in the foreground and which is in the background probably depends on your perspective. We will discuss the changing of the guard between his old allies of convenience like Buharlin and a new set of loyalists, and we will discuss the unhappy fate of Nadja Stalin. Hello, and welcome to Autocracy Now. Episode 5 of Stalin, Nadja and Kirov. On November 8th, 1932, the Stalins were hosting a party to celebrate the 15th anniversary of the October Revolution when the Bolsheviks had come to power. As they hosted this party, the crisis in Ukraine was at its height. Beneath the glamour and the celebratory atmosphere, the political tensions ran riot. Just hours before the party, Stalin met the head of the secret police to discuss the developments in the countryside. Against the backdrop of the push for grain and collectivisation, and industrialisation in the first five-year plan, a very personal drama would unfold. As we've described, the Bolsheviks were an unusually close-knit community. Such was the all-consuming nature of their political careers, and the fanaticism of their devotion to revolution. Very few of them had many close associates outside of the party. Stalin's inner circle, although constantly shifting and changing, was populated entirely by party members. Many of these had been associates of Stalin from the underground days, when their party was robbing banks and constantly evading arrest by the Tsar's secret police. They had witnessed and taken part in the October Revolution, although, as we've discussed, its dramatic heft was subsequently exaggerated for propaganda. Now, they held the reins of power over a rapidly changing nation. Stalin and Nadia were the power couple at the centre of this web of connections and influence. Stalin was already occasionally referred to by the title of Vojd, or leader, although often not to his face. Yet their marriage had been strained for years, by his workaholism and callousness, and by her mental instability and desire to be more than just a housewife. Everyone could see it. Most of the Bolshevik magnates, unsympathetic, sided with Stalin, telling him that his wife was quite impossible to deal with at times. The roller coaster of the marriage, feverish declarations of love interspersed with dramatic episodes where Nadja would declare she was leaving and taking the children with her, was surely taking its emotional toll on both of them. Nadja had dressed up unusually for the dinner party, exchanging the usual drab Bolshevik modestness for a black dress with embroidered red roses imported from Berlin. Her brother, who'd served in the armed forces, had brought it home for her in some such special occasion. Stalin didn't seem to notice. He spent the evening flirting with the wife of a Red Army commander. Apparently, his preferred method of flirtation was throwing bits of bread at the lady, an actress who was rumoured to have all kinds of affairs behind her husband's back. Perhaps when you're in charge of the Soviet superstate, the allure of power can overcome a lack of flirtatious finesse. Certainly, by all accounts, Stalin had plenty of admirers. There are even some rather dramatic pieces of fan mail that arise from the newly opened USSR archives that sound like the kind of thing your average boy band pop star has to put up with. It's also clear and understandable that this flirtation made Nadja jealous. Apparently the tipping point came when Stalin toasted the destruction of the enemies of the state at the dinner, you know, standard, cheerful, dinnertime toast, and noticed that Nadja wasn't drinking. Maybe she couldn't tolerate the thought that this destruction meant mass starvation for innocent peasants, Maybe she was just personally irritated at Stalin for flirting with another woman and ignoring her. Hey you, have a drink, yelled Stalin to Nadja. 
My name isn't Hay. Shut up, shut up, yelled Narja in response. She stormed out of the room, followed by the wife of her party comrade. Stalin, probably well on the way to drunkenness at this point, didn't see the point in going after her. What a fool, he's said to have muttered under his breath. Given all that we know about their marriage, Narja storming off in a huff over some slight, real or imagined, was probably a fairly regular occurrence. Stalin, determined not to let it ruin his evening, went off to an after-party and returned to his apartment in the early hours of the morning. There were rumours that during this time he had an illicit rendezvous with an unknown woman, and this was reported to Nadia by an inexperienced guard when she asked where he was. Whatever the real case may be, he didn't return home until late, and probably rolled in drunk. Without checking on his wife, he went straight to his own bed in a room on the other side of the apartment. Nadia, for her part, composed a vicious letter to Stalin, a letter that their daughter Svetlana would later describe as terrible. Her brother had brought her home an expensive lady's pistol, a fitting weapon for a revolutionary, but in hindsight a less than perfect gift for a manic depressive prone to fits of despair. At some point in the early hours of the morning, Narja shot herself in the heart. She was 31 years old. She died that same night. The scene here mirrors the scene after Stalin's own eventual death in 1953. When the event was discovered, the initial reaction was panic. Who was going to tell Stalin? Household servants summoned various Bolshevik magnates, doctors and professors, but it was far too late to do anything to help Nadja. Apparently, Stalin eventually walked into the room himself, presumably to see what the fracas was about. His reaction is captured by Montefiore. Quote, Stalin was poleaxed. This supremely political creature, with an inhuman disregard for the millions of starving women and children in his own country, displayed more humanity over the next few days than he would at any other time in his life. Olga, Nadja's mother, an elegant lady of independent spirit who had known Stalin so long and always regretted her daughter's behaviour, hurried into the dining room, where a broken Stalin was still absorbing the news. Doctors had arrived, and they offered the heartbroken mother some valerian drops, the Valium of the 1930s, but she could not drink them. Stalin staggered towards her. I'll drink them, he said, and down the whole dose. He saw the body and the letter which, his daughter wrote, shocked and wounded him grievously. The Man of Steel was a shambles, not sideways, exploding in fits of rage, blaming anyone else, even the books she was reading, before subsiding in despair. Then he claimed he resigned from power. He too was going to kill himself, saying, I can't go on living like this. End quote. Although Stalin was given to the dramatic flair when things went wrong, this level of depression was unprecedented, and he was kept under suicide watch by his associates for several days, until he calmed down and was able to resume public life. It's impossible to know what impact this tragic event had on Stalin, personally and politically. He always had shown himself to be a callous merchant of death. Perhaps all it did was further harden his resolve and bitterness. And it's very easy to fit historical figures into a narrative. This was the moment where they became the monster that we know them to be. Real people aren't like that. They don't transition that suddenly, in most cases. Yet, beyond the tragedy of a loved one's death, the suicide was a personal repudiation of Stalin. Svetlana, his daughter, wrote that he was too smart not to realise that people always commit suicide in order to punish someone. It seems that when Stalin discussed this event, he underwent the range of emotion that people often do in this circumstance. Half the time he blamed Nadja, crying, She's crippled me and abandoned the children. She left me like an enemy. On occasion, even Stalin felt that he was at fault, saying, I couldn't save you, over her funeral casket, and once, quite bizarrely in my view, admitting, I wasn't the best husband. I never had time to take her to the cinema. After 1932, so many of the Bolshevik inner circle said that Stalin changed. Whether it was the immense political pressure of the famine in the Ukraine, 
having so much blood on his hands, or the personal sense of guilt and betrayal at his wife's death, we cannot know. In her room, a political pamphlet written by Stalin's opponents was discovered, which has led a lot of people to speculate that Stalin took this as a political repudiation as well as a personal one. In the case of Nadia, there was evidence that her mental health problems went back for many years. Yet at the same time, I can't imagine that knowing about the famine in the Ukraine and the general stress of being the first family of Russia didn't take its toll on her. She had a state funeral where Stalin openly wept in public, something none of his associates had ever seen, and it was announced officially that she had died of appendicitis. The truth about her suicide was not even published in the Soviet Union until 1988, although Western historians knew about it much earlier. Her suicide had a terrible effect on the Stalin children, who had already been distant from both of their parents for political reasons. Svetlana, who was only six, was not informed what had happened, and a year after her death was still asking when her mother would return from abroad. The eldest son, Vasily, who had already been somewhat rough around the edges, became by many accounts a violent little princeling who was desperately unhappy, seeking the approval of his distant father and substituting his absent parenthood with the nearest father figures to hand, his bodyguards. Stalin would later, in private, regret that he had not been there for his children, in the same way as he had not been there for his wives. But it should have been clear from the start where his priorities in life really were. Stalin was not emotionally ready to give the speech at Nagy's funeral, and so this duty went to one Lazar Kaganovich. He was one of the new breed of Stalinist associates, for, although I didn't have time to talk about it too much last episode, as Stalin destroyed the NEP and made his great heel turn, at the same time he politically destroyed Bukharin and the right wing of the party thus fully consolidating his power. When, in 1928, Stalin had begun the grain requisitions, Bukharin, Rykov and Tomsky, who had later become known as the key figures of the right opposition to the Bolsheviks, were in favour of continuing with the NEP and its slower, more steady route towards industrialisation. Bukharin made his thoughts known at the Party Congress of that year, but having helped Stalin accumulate ever more power in his defeat of Trotsky, Zinoviev and Kamenev, he was out of friends and out of allies. Stalin found it easy at this stage to replace Bukharin and his allies in various party machines with other figures. Ideologically, it was also easy to attack Bukharin, as he was essentially supporting a capitalist deviation from true Marxism-Leninism. The NEP had always sat uneasily with the more radical ideologues in the party, and it was true that Lenin had only ever intended it as a temporary compromise. The tactic of divide and conquer that Stalin used was successful, and by 1929, Bukharin had been expelled from the Politburo. Meeting with Kamenev and Zinoviev, who had already been expelled and demonised as factionalists, did not allow Bukharin to rehabilitate his reputation any. The key here is that the last of the old Politburo members, who had taken power in the October Revolution and still had links to the legitimacy of Lenin, was now also sidelined. The last of the figures that Lenin had mentioned in his suppressed testament as possible successors had been expelled from the Politburo, and instead, Stalin would fill it with men whose loyalty could not be questioned. Bukharin apologised to Stalin publicly, worried about being expelled from the party for setting up a faction, but in private he was referred to Stalin as Genghis Khan and lamented the fact that he had amassed total power over the party. Stalin knew that Bukharin's public displays of loyalty were insincere. After all, he had the private communications of all Politburo members tapped and monitored from the early stages of the power struggle in the 1920s. But Bukharin was allowed to remain in the party and given some minor administrative roles. There was, of course, a good argument for keeping your enemies as close as possible in the USSR. So who were the new loyalists who filled Stalin's inner circle? In his wonderful book, The Court of the Red Tsar, Montefiore deals with all the individuals in the inner circle, 
using their own words and communications as much as possible, and shedding light on Stalin via his associations with his contemporaries. There was Molotov, nicknamed Stonearse on account of sitting at his desk for 18 hours a day. He was a Bolshevik ideological purist, and considered something of a dull plodder by Lenin and others. One of the things you notice about the men who Stalin surrounds himself with is their fanatical devotion to ideology, but sometimes also their lack of individual creative thought about that ideology. Loyalty was a more important quality than originality for Stalin. In terms of dogged loyalty and intense bureaucracy, Molotov was second to none. Serving as Premier, during this period, he oversaw collectivisation and the implementation of the first five-year plan. He was personally in charge of the grain shipments from the Ukraine that was so instrumental in leading to the Holodomor. Later in his career, he was best remembered for being Stalin's foreign minister. After Hitler's rise to power in 1933, this was probably the key area of Soviet government, with the focus shifting abroad. In Molotov, Stalin had a competent and capable loyalist and deputy, who he often gave key roles of responsibility. There was also Kaganovich, a Politburo member who had become known as Iron Lazar. Amongst his duties were being in charge of the railways, the construction of the admittedly beautiful and grand Moscow metro, and sharing responsibility with Molotov for the implementation of Stalin's economic policies. There was Sergo Orkonikidze, a tireless fellow Georgian of Stalin's who was in charge of heavy industry. These men often had disputes with Stalin over the finer points of policy, and they were by no means complete lickspittles. They would regularly write notes to each other in very familiar and friendly terms, but none of them would be on criticising Stalin when necessary. Sergo, for example, wrote to him of his experiences in the countryside and the disastrous consequences of collectivisation. Some of them even still referred to him by the familiar Koba, as if reminding him of the time when they had all been equals, when he'd just been another revolutionary. But in reality, there was little doubt that they knew where the power in the USSR really lay, and none of them ever seriously challenged his leadership. Far less questionable in terms of blind, slavish loyalty, and one of the more repugnant characters you come across, was Lavrenti Beria. No historian has anything nice to say about Beria, and with good reason. He was one of Stalin's more brutal and murderous lieutenants, so intimately associated with the secret police in the NKVD, that for a long time the excesses of Stalin's purges and repression were actually laid at Beria's feet. People were willing to believe that he was solely responsible for the mass executions that would comprise Stalin's great terror. The sickening thing about Beria is how, to Stalin's face, he was a sycophant. When he first visited Stalin's Dhaka and first caught the eye of the Bolshevik tyrant, it said that Stalin was complaining about the shoddy state of the garden. Beria immediately grabbed an axe and cut down an offending tree, saying, I'm just demonstrating to the master of the garden, Joseph Vissarionovich, that I can chop down any tree that offends him. It's as if he was offering to become Stalin's enforcer agent against imagined enemies. Beneath the toadying and flattery, Beria concealed a horrific personality beneath a loyalist exterior. There is now a great deal of historical evidence that he abused his power of head of the NKVD to carry out a campaign of sexual assault against women. He would drive around the streets with fellow NKVD officers at night, selecting individuals to target. From Montefiore again. Quote, After dining, Beria would take a woman into his soundproofed office and rape them. Beria's bodyguards reported that their orders included handing each victim a flower bouquet as she left Beria's house. The implication being that to accept it made it consensual. Refusal would mean arrest. In one incident, his chief bodyguard, Sarkisov, reported that a woman had been brought to Beria and had rejected his advances and ran out of his office. Sarkisov mistakenly handed her the flowers anyway, prompting the enraged Beria to declare, Now it's not a bouquet, it's a wreath. May it rot on your grave. The woman was arrested by the NKVD the next day.
end quote. Some women, in desperation, were persuaded to accept his advances in the hope of freeing husbands or siblings, who had been detained by the NKVD. In one case, Beria promised to free the father and grandfather of a young actress before raping her. The relatives in question had, in reality, been executed months earlier. Beria's many crimes are still under investigation, with the handwritten list that he kept of his victims due for public release in 2028. There was strong anecdotal evidence that Stalin and other Politburo members knew about Beria's actions, with Stalin even telephoning his daughter when she was left alone with Beria and telling her to leave immediately. Other Politburo members advised their daughters never to accept a lift from him. Such is the nature of the type of individual who can rise to great prominence and influence when loyalty and brutality are the main qualities that the leader searches for. As Stalin's regime became more and more bloodthirsty, Beria would rise to greater and greater prominence. In 1932, after Naja's death, however, one of the greatest stars of the Bolshevik party, rising through the ranks, was Sergei Kirov, who was in charge of the Leningrad, that is, St. Petersburg or Petrograd, renamed after Lenin in the Soviet Union, branch of the party. Stalin had promoted him to this position in 1926, when Zinoviev had been ousted from the Leningrad party, where his power had been concentrated. The geographical separation of Russia and the concentration of the urban, educated population in a few industrial centres meant that being a local party boss was often a key stepping stone in your political career. While Kirov was in Leningrad, he could build up a network of contacts and influence, independent of the central bureaucracy. Leningrad had been the old capital of the state, after all, and it was a very influential city. Kirov was a dashing young man who enjoyed drinking and the good life, and he later became a very close friend of Stalin's. Montefiore puts it wonderfully. He says, quote, Stalin turned to Kirov, who he said cared for me like a child. Kirov was at ease in his own skin. It was perhaps this that made him so attractive to Stalin, whose friendships resembled crushes, and like crushes they could turn swiftly into bitter envy. Now he wanted to be with Kirov all the time. Kirov was in and out of his office five times during the days after Naji's funeral. Stalin and Kirov were like a pair of equal brothers, teasing one another, telling dirty stories, laughing. Big friends, brothers, and they needed one another according to Stalin's adopted son. With his new circle of loyalist associates and still recovering from the personal tragedy of Naja's death, perhaps Stalin wanted to throw himself into political matters more. In 1933, a rip-roaring speech declaring the successes of collectivisation and the first five-year plan was delivered to a leading of key Bolsheviks. And Stalin could indeed point to a lot of achievements, although many of them were exaggerated and achieved at a terrible cost. The Baltic White Sea Canal had been completed in just a few years and spanned over 200 miles, but it had required the slave labour of nearly 200,000 political prisoners, of whom more than 10% had died in the process. The terrible famine that was still occurring in the Ukraine was of course not mentioned. Yet beneath the propaganda, bombast and bluster of the endlessly overfulfilled quotas and an economic miracle, there were rumblings of discontent in the Stalinist regime. On the eve of the 17th Party Congress, when the state newspaper Pravda was reporting, quote, Stalin, the appearance of the ardently loved Vojd, leader, whose name is inseparably linked with all the victories scored by the proletariat, by the Soviet Union, was greeted with tumultuous ovations. End quote. While this was still being reported in Pravda, there were secret meetings going on between various local party leaders. The strain and horror of Stalin's brutality, along with the kind of personal grievances that always accrue in a system full of ambitious people led to a conspiracy. Kirov was approached 
and sounded out by a group of regional party leaders, and was asked if he would consider replacing Stalin in the leadership one day. There's a classic story in Roman history of the self-fulfilling prophecy. The prefect Macrinus, one of his duties was to read the Emperor Caracalla's post, and one day he received a letter concerning a prophecy. The prophecy stated that Caracalla would be overthrown, and he, Macrinus, would be the next emperor. Now, what could Macrinus do? If Caracalla discovered the prophecy, Macrinus would surely be killed, even if he dutifully reported it to the emperor. In the end, Macrinus did the only thing he felt he could, and, to defend himself, launched a coup against Caracalla. The prophecy came true. Ever the loyalist, and perhaps understanding like Macrinus did the terrible consequences of suspicion, Kirov immediately reported this plot to Stalin, who thanked him and sent him on his way. But the seeds of doubt had already been sown, and they were quite clearly made worse during the party congress votes. Now, every time the party met, there was a formal vote to elect members of the central committee. The system that it used was quite arcane, so what happened was a list of candidates got nominated, and the delegates crossed out the names that they didn't approve of. So it's a sort of negative voting, and it turned out to have quite a dramatic effect. Kirov received two or three negative votes, while Stalin got well over a hundred. Of course, this election was meaningless and the results were repressed. Remember Stalin's quote about how the really important thing was not who voted, but who counted the ballots. All of the negative ballots for Stalin were destroyed. When the results were announced, Stalin pointedly was declared to be one vote more popular than Kirov. Stalin initially planned to separate Kirov from his power base by summoning him from Leningrad to a more central role in the party, so that Stalin could keep an eye on him and potentially head off conspiracies from outside his government. But Kirov managed to negotiate a compromise where he stayed in Leningrad while taking on some new responsibilities. This did nothing to assuage the newfound tension in their relationship. Montefiore points out that on June 30th, 1933, while all this was going on, Hitler's Night of the Long Knives occurred when he dramatically disposed of his own internal party rivals through a sudden series of arrests. Stalin himself commented, Some fellow that Hitler! Splendid! That's a deed of some skill! Over the next few months, Stalin and Kirov had an oscillating relationship. Sometimes there would be a détente, and the two would laugh and joke in the way that we described before. But sometimes they'd fall out over some political matter, like Kirov's opposition to Stalin, when he wanted to end bread rationing, which was necessary to feed Leningrad. When Kirov and Beria visited the city of Baku together, Kirov fell mysteriously ill, and doctors were baffled by his symptoms, which ended up being very severe. He even suffered a heart attack. Beria, who would end up with quite the track record as a poisoner, has not escaped this incident free of suspicion. But a few weeks later, Kirov and Stalin were once again embracing in the private carriage of his train. It was not in Stalin's nature to telegraph his political actions ahead of time. I'll go back to Montefiore for the description of what happened next. Quote, On 1st December, Kirov started at work at home and set off from his apartment on foot to the office. He entered the Smolny Institute by the public entrance. At 4.30pm, Kirov, followed by his bodyguard Borisov, walked up to his third floor office. Old Borisov fell behind, either from being unfit or from being strangely delayed by some policeman from Moscow. Kirov turned right and passed a dark-haired young man, Leonid Nikolaev, who pressed him against the wall to allow Kirov to pass, and then trailed along behind him. Nikolaev pulled out a revolver and shot Kirov from three feet away in the back of the neck. He then turned the pistol on himself and squeezed the trigger, but an electrician working nearby somehow knocked him down and the second bullet hit the ceiling. Borisov the guard staggered up breathlessly, and Kirov fell face down, head turned to the right, his cap's peak resting on the floor, 
and still gripping his briefcase. A Bolshevik workaholic to the last. End quote. It is often wise to be wary of pointing to specific turning points in history. So often for the sake of narrative convenience, we miss out on the subtleties of wider trends and forces, so that we can tell a more dramatic story. It seems inevitable to me that Stalin's paranoia would eventually have forced him to start turning on his rivals and enemies within the party. Bolshevism was obsessed with the elimination of these internal rivals. But the murder of Kirov was a turning point in Stalin's regime in two key ways. First, it was really one of the first times that violence and murder had been used against a former ally and friend in order to head off a potential coup attempt. Remember that previous old Bolsheviks had been demoted and exiled rather than killed. And second, it gave Stalin the excuse he needed to organise a wider purge. As soon as Stalin was informed of the murder, he announced that Kirov had been assassinated and that it was the left opposition of Zinoviev, Kamenev and Trotsky who were responsible for the murder. The reality of the situation and of ultimate responsibility is less clear. Nikolaev was a malcontent, likely blaming Kirov for his own lack of political success. He was unemployed, he was in debt, and there were strong suspicions that Kirov, who was no stranger to womanising, was having an affair with his wife. He visited Kirov's office a few weeks before armed with a pistol, in violation of the law, but the NKVD secret police mysteriously released him, and their security around Kirov was very lax for a man who was so important. Did Stalin order the murder, or did he simply instruct the NKVD to allow it to happen? Or was he fairly blameless and just exploited it for his own political ends? In this, I lean towards the conspiracy theory angle. There are so many incredibly suspicious aspects to this case. Borisov the bodyguard was arrested, and mysteriously died in a car accident the day afterwards before he could give evidence. The rate of car accidents amongst informants and other suspects was staggeringly high. Maybe the NKVD needed to invest in better drivers? The assassin, Nikolaev, was personally questioned by Stalin, who declared that this proved he was working with the left opposition. Mysterious accidents were suffered by policemen who'd spoken to the assassin. His wife, who had supposedly been the one having an affair with Kirov, was arrested and executed before she could testify. We'll never know for certain, there's no smoking gun piece of evidence that proves Stalin was responsible. The muddy circumstances could be down to incompetent secret policemen, trying to cover their own tracks. After all, Stalin also ordered that some of the police should be arrested for mishandling the case and allowing Kirov to be assassinated, although none of these sentences were actually carried out. Stalin may not have directly ordered the murder, but as every historian notes, he certainly profited greatly from it. If the wild conspiracy theory that this murder was a genuine assassination was true, his wrath should have fallen on the assassin, and the local police forces who failed in protecting Kirov. Instead, the wild conspiracy theory that Trotsky, Zinoviev and Kamenev were responsible was the focus of Stalin's investigation and public announcements. Never let it be said that the dull bureaucrat had no flair for the dramatic, and of course, the more you paint the picture of internal enemies and sabotage as opposed to incompetence, the more of your rivals you can dispose of. Under torture, Nikolaev admitted a link to Zinoviev, Zinoviev and Kamenev were arrested and sentenced to five and ten year sentences, and some 6,000 people found guilty of some sort of complicity in the plot were arrested and executed in the month of December alone. At the same time, one man, Nikolai Yezov, was rising through the ranks of the secret police. Various different descriptions of him exist. It seems that he had an outwardly modest and shy appearance, although there's one denunciation of him that was written in 1936 by an old Bolshevik who said, Quote, 
In the whole of my long life, I have never met a more repellent personality than Yezov's. When I look at him, I am reminded irresistibly of the wicked urchins of the courts in Rastorevieva Street, whose favourite occupation was to tie a piece of paper dipped in kerosene to a cat's tail, set fire to it, and then watch with delight how the terrified animal would tear down the street, trying desperately but in vain to escape the approaching flames. I do not doubt that in his childhood, Yezov amused himself in just such a manner, and that he is now continuing to do so in different forms. End quote. Yezov would later become known as the Poison Dwarf, owing to the fact he was five feet tall. Stanan liked him because he reliably followed through on any order that was given to him, without delay, hesitation, or questioning. Ideal for a secret police chief. Montefiore describes him as, quote, uneducated but sly, able, perceptive, and without any moral boundaries. He worked with the current head of the NKVD, Yagoda, in the attempts to squeeze confessions of counter-revolutionary crimes out of Zinoviev and Kamenev while they were under arrest, and organised a miniature purge of some elements in the Kremlin that Stalin had grown hostile to. The level of his eventual involvement in the Great Terror was such that it was sometimes called the Yezovshina, although this term was probably invented by Stalin in an attempt to pin the blame on Yezov. Even as repression expanded, the cult of personality around Stalin and even some members of his Bolshevik inner circle, intensified. Stalin played up to this. In some ways, he viewed himself as a red czar. He described Ivan the Terrible, the old czar, as his teacher in all things, and voraciously read about him. It's notable that Ivan the Terrible was at a constant war with his underling laws known as boyars, and frequently had them purged and executed for disloyalty. You get the sense that maybe, if you were one of Stalin's inner circle, the fact that he idolised a man famous for torturing and executing his own allies for disloyalty might cause a slight sense of alarm. Stalin said that the Russian people, they needed a Tsar whom they could worship, live and work for. And he was not averse to occasional actions that showed he had the common touch. When an elderly grandmother wrote to him offering a cow, a bizarre sort of tribute to the new lord, he wrote back in a kind tone, saying that he didn't have much room for one in his office, but thanking her for his, her offer. He intervened on behalf of a schoolteacher who complained that he'd been unfairly dismissed. He rode the new Moscow metro against the advice of his advisers, and caused a considerable stir when he did so. Pravda even attempted to publish an interview with his mother, although this was a little too tabloidy for Stalin. Besides, the distant and austere remove of a great leader probably precludes speaking to his mother about what he was like when he was a child. There's a telling conversation around this time between Stalin and his mother that's often reported by historians. The ageing Keke asked, Son, where are you now exactly? Stalin, Well, remember the Tsars? I suppose I'm a bit like a Tsar. Oh, you would have been better if you became a priest, replied his mother. Stalin apparently just laughed in response. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you've enjoyed Autocracy Now, please leave us a review or rate us on iTunes. I know everyone always says this, but it's the best way to get us noticed, without me having to organise a series of increasingly dangerous publicity stunts. You can visit our website at www.autocracynow.libsyn.com, email the show at autocracynowoutlook.com, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, WordPress, and donate to the show if you like. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. Next episode, we will deal with the Great Terror. The systematic repression that had been rumbling in the background throughout the Stalinist regime will take on new and terrifying proportions and turn inwards on members of the party itself. Paranoia, mass violence, torture and vast lists of victims drawn up and signed off in Politburo offices. 
The same intensity, brutality and target-based mentality that had driven the Soviet industrialization under the first five-year plan would now be deployed in a different kind of machinery that would systematically destroy the lives of millions of people and sever the last links between the revolution of Lenin and the autocracy of Stalin. Hello, and welcome to Autocracy Now. As part of our series on Stalin, today's episode is The Great Terror, Part 1, Devouring the Children. Like Saturn, the revolution devours its children. This phrase was coined by Jacques Dupin, a French royalist during the era of the French Revolution. During the Great Terror, Robespierre and Saint-Just, both intellectual, idealistic men, were convinced of the necessity for the revolution's survival for their old allies to be liquidated. The men who had stormed the Bastille and triggered the original revolution, such as Georges Danton and Camille Desmoulins, would be executed on vague, trumped-up charges. Lenin and Stalin had admired Robespierre's insistence that the revolution had to occur hand-in-hand with terror. History doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes a lot of the time. On the 19th of August, 1936, 16 demoralised and broken men made their way into the Grand October Hall in the House of Unions in Moscow. Amongst them were the star defendants of Zinoviev and Kamenev, these men who had rubbed shoulders with Lenin and played crucial roles in the early stages of the revolution. They were to be put on trial, accused of orchestrating one of the most extraordinary conspiracies in political history. These men, former prominent Bolsheviks, were accused of organising a vast and shadowy secret movement, collaborating with the Germans, Mensheviks and other suppressed political parties and forces within Russia. Not only that, but even when they had been storming the Winter Palace in 1917, they were accused of having been secret agents in the pay of the British government. Why exactly the British government would want to overthrow the Tsar and replace him with a Bolshevik party that immediately pulled out of the war with Germany, thus freeing up German armies to fight in the trenches against the British, was never really explained. The crimes that they were accused of? Plotting the assassination of Stalin and a whole host of his underlings, and succeeding in the assassination of Kirov in 1934, with the ultimate aim of overthrowing the Soviet state in a vast counter-revolution. This was no ordinary trial. We've already discussed how the judicial branch of government in Russia had always been an arm of the executive branch, and how the Bolsheviks had used it to fulfil their political goals. But the great Moscow trials at the start of the Great Terror took this to new heights. It was no trial at all, but a piece of political theatre. Every single one of the defendants confessed the crimes they were accused of in full. Indeed, five out of the sixteen defendants were plants from the NKVD secret police, whose sole purpose was to implicate the others. The case against Zinoviev and Kamenev were full of holes. Stalin had written the charge sheet and the confessions himself. Montefiore describes him as, quote, revelling in his hyperbolic talent as a hack playwright. And you can imagine the Machiavellian glee of the artist getting to manipulate the script, forcing his old adversaries to humiliate themselves and dance around like puppets. After all, what could be a finer show for the politically theatric than having your enemies condemn themselves and support your conspiracy theories? Here, in Stalin, I feel like we see the Georgian code of conduct of his school days. We see his ability and desire not to just defeat his opponents, but to crush them utterly. There's more to it, though. If an enemy dies unrepentant or languishes in prison for dissent, they might be remembered as a martyr. But if they're forced to confess to opposing Stalin to undermine the state, and being in the pay of capitalists and so on, doubt is thrown on them and their criticisms are discredited. So we see the vengeful Georgian abrek of the mountains, but we also see the prima donna who threatened resignation multiple times to receive reassurance from Lenin. We see the fan of drama. The reality, as Stalin surely knew even as he was writing up the charge sheets, was that this grand conspiracy was impossible. 
Perhaps Sinoviev and Kamenev had access to grind, and maybe they were even on the lookout for opportunities to foment revolution against Stalin. But the ludicrous charge sheet against them was filled with conspiracies that Stalin himself surely did not believe as he was writing them. So this was less about dealing with a genuine perceived threat, and more about humiliating old rivals and sending a message to new ones about what happens when you dare to defy Stalin's power. There was no material evidence against them, except, bizarrely, a forged passport from Honduras that was supposedly evidence that Zinoviev and Kamenev had been communicating with the exiled Trotsky. The case presented by the authorities had glaring logical holes. For example, the court was told that Trotsky's son had ordered the assassinations in the Hotel Bristol in Denmark, but it turned out this hotel had been demolished in 1917. Stalin was furious with this embarrassing lapse, which did little to convince the few foreign journalists present that the charges were genuine. He shouted, What the devil did you need the hotel for? You should have said the railway station. The railway station is always there. Yet despite these obvious errors and the lack of evidence, the defendants made complete and grovelling confessions of guilt. Lev Kamenev said, I, Kamenev, together with Zinoviev and Trotsky, organised and guided this conspiracy. My motives? I had become convinced that the party's, Stalin's policy, was successful and victorious. We, the opposition, had banged on a split in the party, but this hope proved groundless. We could no longer count on any serious domestic difficulties to allow us to overthrow Stalin's power. We were actuated by boundless hatred and lust for power. Grigory Zinoviev also confessed, I would like to repeat that I am fully and utterly guilty. I am guilty of having been the organiser, second only to Trotsky, of the bloc whose chosen task was the killing of Stalin. I was the principal organiser of Kirov's assassination. The party saw where we were going and warned us. Stalin warned us scores of times, but we did not heed these warnings. We entered into an alliance with Trotsky. End quote. The reason for these confessions, of course, was that both men had been subjected to prolonged psychological torture by the NKVD. Stalin's order to the NKVD had been simple and cold. Mount your prisoner and do not dismount until they have confessed. End quote. Yezov, the poison dwarf who was rapidly rising towards becoming the head of the NKVD, promised the witnesses their lives and the safety of their families in exchange for these dramatic confessions and for testifying against their fellow Bolsheviks. The great soullessness of the Soviet state and the Kafkaesque nature of being accused by it was known to Stalin and illustrated in a conversation he had with one of the policemen during the confessions. Stalin. You think Kamenev may not confess? Policeman. I don't know. Stalin. You don't know? Do you know how much our state weighs with all the factories, machines, the army with all the armaments and the navy? Think it over and tell me. Well, nobody can know that, Joseph Vissenarianovich. It is in the realm of astronomical figures. Well, and can one man withstand the pressure of that astronomical weight? No, Comrade Stalin. Very well, then. Do not return until you have the confession of Kamenev. The secret deal that these men had made with the NKVD is revealed by Kamenev's final remarks in the trial, which are telling. They required to play their parts in the drama right until the end, of course, but Kamenev veered off script. He said, I should like to say just a few words to my children. I have two children. One is an army pilot, the other a young pioneer. Whatever the sentence may be, I consider it just. Together with the people, follow where Stalin leads. End quote. By referring to his sons as loyal servants of the state, Kamenev clearly hoped that they would be spared. It is very likely at this stage that he knew any promises made about his own life weren't going to be kept. Not that it did him any good to please for his family's life, because both boys would later be shot. 
On the other side of the trial was the special prosecutor, Byshinsky, who had once shared a cell with Stalin. This man, who Western journalists described as resembling a prosperous stockbroker, launched into vicious attacks on the defendants, designed to whip people up into a frenzy. In his summing up, he cried, quote, These mad dogs of capitalism tried to tear limb from limb the best of our Soviet land. I demand that these mad dogs be shot, every one of them. End quote. This fury was echoed in Pravda's headlines the next day. Crush the loathsome creatures! The mad dogs must be shot! So as you can see, Pravda was fractionally worse than the Daily Mail. The attempt to whip up public fury and outrage, and thus unite the people of the USSR against a common enemy, fits in with everything we've said about the Bolshevik siege mentality. The system, to an extent, needed people to unite against and persecute. Justifications of the fanaticism and harsh wartime social and economic policies. And ultimately, it needed people to blame for the gap between the socialist dream and the reality of the socialist state. It reminds me a little bit of some of the politics of today. Obviously, the Bolsheviks did not campaign politically per se. They rejected democracy and the Duma parliament when it no longer suited their aims. But they did appeal to the people, and they did so on this platform of a revolutionary struggle against a common enemy. It was this fanatical idea of the struggle that motivated them throughout the civil war. Being a defender of the revolution was key. The same attitude was brought to economic policy, where fanaticism was still the order of the day. The Stakhanovite movement, which flourished under the five-year plans, where individual workers were celebrated for completing impossible feats of coal mining or steel production, was a prime example of this. The original Stakhanov was a man who'd broken the record for coal mining, although it turned out that he did so with the use of some additional equipment, so the goal that he set for others to follow was just ridiculous and not especially fair. Idealism about the revolution and paranoia about it being undermined, they went hand in hand. Like so many figures who promise radical change, and then suddenly find themselves in a position of power, the Bolsheviks found that it was easier to rail against enemies than to construct the paradise that they'd promised and dreamed of. The politics of the outsider movement don't always adapt well to holding the reins of authority in a vast state like Russia. So, just as Stalin had frantically pursued power and radical economic change, he now fanatically wreaked vengeance upon his enemies within the Bolshevik party. If you've ever suffered from insomnia, maybe on the day before a big exam or job interview, you can probably imagine perhaps a thousandth of what the trial defendants felt. The guilty verdict, when it came, came with the inevitability of the rising sun and the birdsong informing you that it's time to face another day. But for these men and women, it would be their last day. Stalin was holidaying in Sochi, and three hours later... He ordered the executions of the prisoners. Stalin never personally attended torture or executions, but he knew plenty of men who were willing, if not eager, to carry out the work. In reading about this, I often wonder how I would react to the knowledge that I was about to be executed. It's one of those human experiences that's happened across the generations in countries across the world, having that knowledge that in a few hours you'll die a violent death. Charles I, when he was about to be executed by Parliament, spent the night with his family and slept a little. Louis XV, when he was due to be executed by French revolutionaries, spent his time reading about Charles I, the one man who might feasibly know what he was going through. There's a universality to death which unites all human beings. There's that famous Bukowski quote about it. We're all going to die, all of us. What a circus. That alone should make us love each other, but it doesn't. We are terrorised and flattened by trivialities. We're eaten up by nothing. End quote and a lot of people were going to be eaten up by nothing in the Great Terror. I guess it's one of those questions, like a lot of moral dilemma questions, where there's probably a gap between what we say we'd do and what we fear we'd do. 
Apparently, Zinoviev and Kamenev were at opposite ends of the spectrum. Kamenev stoically accepted his fate and told Zinoviev to die with dignity, while Zinoviev begged and pleaded with the guards to call Stalin, who'd promised to save their lives. The end result for both of them was the same. They were shot through the back of the head. This fate is echoed in George Orwell's 1984, A Denunciation of Stalinism, where Winston Smith, the protagonist, writes in his diary feverishly, They'll shoot me, I don't care, they'll shoot me, I don't care, they'll shoot me in the back of the neck, I don't care, they always shoot me in the back of the neck, I don't care. Apparently, the bullets were retrieved, cleaned, labelled Zinoviev and Kamenev, and kept by Yagoda, the current head of the NKVD. As for Stalin, he didn't watch these executions himself. But, just like the monarchs of old, he had his court jesters who'd entertain him. In this case, his personal bodyguard's head, Palka, would entertain him. It's symbolic of power having other humans specifically attempt to amuse you, isn't it? Palka performed for Stalin as Zinoviev, begging for his life and reciting Jewish prayers, and according to Montefiore, quote, Stalin was almost sick with merriment and waved at the man to stop. It's a little sickening to imagine him taking such perverse pleasure in the execution of someone who'd once been his ally and friend. As a young man, Stalin had been awestruck by Kamenev speaking, in the early days of his revolutionary career when he was stuck in that tiny room in the astrological seminary. Now he laughed at the deaths of the old Bolsheviks he'd once admired. The trial of the 16, as the first of the Moscow show trials was called, was not the end of this attack on the Trotskyite counter-revolutionary bloc. Trotsky, for his part, was in exile, but under house arrest in Norway, and he was unable to speak out about the trial as news from Russia filtered through to him. He was sentenced to death in absentia, and powerless to help his allies in Russia, although Stalin wasn't able to have him killed... yet. The first show trial was just the beginning. The defendants had all been forced to implicate the next set of victims for the next show trial. These were mainly figures from the right opposition, such as Bukharin, Rykov and Tomsky. Tomsky saw the writing on the wall and committed suicide as soon as he was implicated in the trial, probably to avoid the humiliation of false confession and implicating his friends. Stalin was reportedly furious, especially when the suicide was compared to that of Nadia. Tomsky's suicide would serve another purpose in the Great Terror. His suicide note mentioned that Yagoda, the current head of the NKVD, was friendly with members of the right opposition. The man in charge of investigating Tomsky's suicide who found this note? Well, it was Yezov, the poisoned dwarf, always trying to spin the situation to his advantage. Casting suspicion on Yagoda, and eventually outright attacking him for being complacent, Yezov got his way and was appointed head of the NKVD in September with Stalin saying that Yagoda was not up to the task of exposing the Trotskyites. Some of the figures on the right, including Bukharin, felt that Yezov's appointment signalled that the terror was over. But in fact, we know with hindsight, it was only just beginning. The NKVD was a vast organisation with incredible powers, and its head was likely the only person whose personal power and influence could begin to rival that of Stalin's in the USSR. Yet this dismissal of Yagoda showed that not even this body was immune from Stalinist persecution. Lakoba, another candidate for the job of NKVD head, refused, preferring to stay in his region of Russia, Abkhazia, where he enjoyed considerable popularity. Lakoba was invited to dinner with Beria, the serial rapist who'd wielded the axe in Stalin's garden and promised to cut down any tree that Stalin wanted him to. That very night, Lakoba fell deathly ill, and a few hours later he died of a heart attack, aged just 43. His doctors were convinced that he was poisoned. Beria had the body cremated and Lakoba's entire family was killed. Stalin, musing to himself in a meeting of the Politburo, he often liked to scribble on a pad of paper in front of him. Well, around the time of this, he scribbled, Poison, poison. The Bolshevik party was turning on its own. Much like the Great Terror of the French Revolution, 
The atmosphere for this massive persecution and paranoia was at least in part set up by foreign conditions. After all, remember that a whole long list of capitalist countries tried, without much enthusiasm or commitment, but tried, to intervene in the Russian Civil War as anti-communists. Hitler came to power in 1933, broadly on the back of anti-communism for the German people, and you can argue that the same atmosphere of polarisation that made communist governments possible really drove the rise of fascism in Europe. Hitler had stated that communism was a menace and that the Soviet Union should be destroyed. Even more broadly, for an ideological Bolshevik who knew as Marx well, the global revolution that they had dreamed of had not manifested itself. The system wasn't supposed to work this way. Even in Stalin's own mind, and the rhetoric he delivered to the public, we'll remember that one key aspect of the propaganda of the five-year plans is that any failures to meet targets were down to wreckers and saboteurs. By pointing endlessly to the internal enemy, and fears of a fascist fifth column in any war that the five-year plan was so brutal in order to justify, Stalin was laying the ideological groundwork for the terror. Fears of counter-revolutionary threats, wreckers, saboteurs. They were at least partially justified, but they'd been given a very wide airing. Bukharin, in these unsettled times, having been demoted to low positions, took to bombarding Stalin with letters pleading for his life. Quote, I am not me. I can't even cry on the body of an old comrade. Koba, I can't live in such a situation. I really love you passionately. I wish you quick and resolute victories. Stalin, of course, never replied, but he read every letter. He would often scrawl crank, big child, or ha-ha-ha in the margins. Bukharin was almost toyed with in a cat-and-mouse way, while Stalin orchestrated further and deeper purges against his former allies. Bukharin met with one of those who was currently on trial, and imagine that, walking around Moscow, seeing people who were on trial, knowing that you'd be next. He saw Payatikov and described him to his wife. Quote, Living remains, not of Payatikov, but of his shadow, a skeleton with his teeth knocked out. End quote. In the next show trial, former industrialists who'd been charged of the first five-year plan, like Radek and Payatikov, were the defendants. This, then, was the trial of the anti-Soviet Trotskyist centre, Radek, whose sparkling wit had led him to be credited with many of the anti-Stalin Soviet jokes, and who was an active member of the left opposition, read his script, which laid the groundwork for a much wider purge to come. Radek confessed to being involved in this Trotskyist plot to overthrow the state, but he also described semi-Trotskyites, quarter-Trotskyites, one-eighth Trotskyites, people who helped us, not knowing of the terrorist organisation but sympathising with us, people who from liberalism, from a fronde against the party, gave us this help. But what did it mean to be one-eighth Trotskyite? In effect, it was the same as what it meant to be a kulak during collectivization. The enemy was shadowy, hazy, ill-defined. Therefore, anyone who resisted, or even showed signs that they might resist, was now somehow part of the conspiracy. Nikita Khrushchev, a rising star in the party, addressed feverish crowds in Moscow. Quote, By raising their hand against Comrade Stalin, the Judas Trotsky and his bloc have raised their hand against the best that humanity has, because Stalin is our hope, Stalin is our banner, Stalin is our will, and Stalin is our victory. End quote. The prominent Bolshevik, Odzgonikidze, realising that Stalin's purges were focused on his deputies and knowing that he'd be next, shot himself through the heart, exactly as Naja had done. The symbolism of the gesture is obvious. His death was formally announced as a heart attack. He avoided the fate of some of his fellow Bolsheviks and was permitted a state funeral. Bukharin was not so fortunate. He refused to shoot himself as he felt that it would be an admission of guilt. He had seen the fates of Zinoviev and Kamenev and did not want to face his own fate with the same lack of dignity, forced to confess and lie about his own actions. 
He knew he was going to die, as the net shrunk around him, and he behaved accordingly. He dictated his final testament to his wife, Anna, but told her not to write it down, merely to remember it, in case it was used against her as evidence. Anna, who later detailed their life together in her memoirs, described the moment when they knew they were parting for the last time, when Bukharin's arrest went through. His final words to her were, See you don't get angry, Anyutka. There are irritating misprints in history, but the truth will triumph. She says, We understood that we were parting forever. Anna herself would at first be exiled, then arrested and sent to the Gulag in 1938. She would spend the next 15 years in various prison camps and forced labour camps, until Stalin's death when she was freed. She then began a political crusade to have Bukharin exonerated, which finally resulted in success in 1988, when he was rehabilitated and cleared of all charges. At this point, Anna was 74 years old. Yezov, the poison dwarf, was now relishing his role in charge of the NKVD, advising those who worked under him not to be too concerned about the innocent or the guilt of the victims of the terror. He said, There will be some innocent victims in this fight against fascist agents. We are launching a major attack on the enemy. Let there be no resentment if we bump someone with an elbow. Better that ten innocent people should suffer than one spy get away. When you chop wood, chips fly. End quote. He was backed up by the ever-unbiased Pravda, which published a song for the NKVD to sing as they arrested people. Um, I'm going to quote the lyrics, I don't think I'll sing to you. The entire Soviet people helps us to chop down the enemy's claws, to cut down the enemy's teeth, to destroy the nests of the enemy with fire. We will defend our Soviet country in the Yezov manner. Hey, enemies, you can't fa- hide your malicious faces in new masks. You can't escape from our stern Yezov grip of steel. Crawling reptiles cannot slither stealthily to the heart of the motherland. Our untiring people's commissar discovers all with a sharp-eyed glance. We are the defence of millions. We are the defence of the whole country. From traitors, spies, inciters of war. To saboteurs, no mercy. End quote. Catchy, right? For Bukharin, too, there was no mercy. This fiercely intellectual man, whom Lenin had described as the darling of the whole party, and who Stalin had called Bukharchik as a term of endearment, was imprisoned for over a year in a Lubyanka prison, a vast and grand austere building that was like the Bastille of the Soviet Union. He attempted to go on hunger strike, which Stalin described as blackmail, and he wrote, a lot, apparently over 200 poems and an autobiographical novel, How It All Began, which was never finished. It ends ominously mid-sentence. Bukharin's approach to his show trial was a little different. Like everyone else, he was well aware that his family had been imprisoned and could be executed. He made a full confession to being a Trotskyite and trying to restore capitalism to the USSR. But he refused to confess to individual, specific crimes, like the murder of Kirov. All he'd say is that he took complete responsibility for the activities of the bloc, while evading questions on the specifics. Obviously nothing Bukharin said could possibly change his fate, but it's clear that he wanted to make some act of protest. Reading a transcript of Bukharin's testimony, which you can do online, is very odd. The intellectualism shines through, as he almost pontificates endlessly in a vague confession of these counter-revolutionary crimes. It's littered with almost minor points of doctrine. Allow me to continue this thought, comrades, and as incredibly verbose and eloquent as his writings often were, even when he was confessing to entirely fictional crimes. Vyshinsky, in his dogged manner as chief of show trial theatrics, summed up. His words serve as a good reminder that Stalin is attempting to discredit any intellectual opposition to his rule, past and present, as motivated by foreign powers and dishonest. Quote, 
Exactly one year ago, Comrade Stalin analysed deficiencies in our work, and arrived at the conclusion that the Trotskyite hypocrites must be liquidated. This direction he outlined in an article he wrote, in which he stated two words on the deviants, saboteurs, spies and others. Trotskyites and Bukharanites, Your Honour, this whole right-wing Trotskyite bloc whose leadership is now in the dock is not a political party. It is not a political movement. This bloc has no ideological content, nothing intellectual, as was the case with earlier members of this clique. Now it is sunk into the fetid ground of underground spies. This is a fifth column, a Ku Klux Klan, which has opened the door to the enemy, who is a sniper from a secret perch, who wants to help invading enemies conquer our villages and cities, who wants to contribute to the defeat of their own country. It is clear that these so-called masters must be mercilessly crushed and destroyed. End quote. Despite his vague confession, Bukharin maintained his innocence in letters to Stalin, written in the same effusive and gushingly emotional tones of his earlier letters. Again, Stalin never formally responded to the desperate Bukharin, but we can infer what he thought of the letters from two pieces of historical fact. The first is that when his desk was searched after his death, one of the three letters he kept, you'll remember there was one from Lenin referring to Stalin yelling at his wife, was from Bukharin. In it, he called Stalin by his childhood nickname, by the name he'd like to be referred to always, as in a desperate attempt to remind him of their closeness, and maybe the honourable nature of the character that he's naming him after. Bukharin wrote, Koba, why do you need me to die? The other fact that lets you know what Stalin really thought is that Bukharin begged to be allowed to die by poison, or a cup of morphine in his poetic terms. Stalin not only had him shot, but the NKVD officers in charge of his execution forced him to watch other people getting shot first. Bukharin was executed in 1938. Bukharin's show trial had another important defendant, the former head of the NKVD, Yagoda. Such was the accelerating rate of the Stalinist purges, Yagoda had been demoted from head of the NKVD in 1936, arrested in 1937, and executed in 1938. So all-encompassing was the Great Terror that it consumed even key members of the NKVD that carried it out. The reason for getting rid of Yagoda are of course obvious, and again George Orwell's 1984, which after all was written as a satire or critique of the socialist system, provides us with the perfect metaphor. Incidentally, reading 1984 will give you as good an idea of any as understanding Stalin's Russia and terror as any fictional book. Emmanuel Goldstein and his endless, undefeatable conspiracy that dissidents are associated with, and forced to confess to associating with, and so on. It's a perfect metaphor for the endless Trotskyite accusations. Indeed, given the obvious anti-Semitism involved in the naming of the demonised figure, Goldstein is an obvious cipher for Trotsky. Plenty of scholars have pointed out that Goldstein's book is just like Trotsky's writings, or a parody of them. The mysterious organisation he leads, the Brotherhood, may be real, or may be a fabrication of the party leadership. We never find out but it serves the exact same purpose as the Trotskyites. Orwell himself, of course, was a socialist who had believed in the socialist utopia, but was utterly disillusioned with how it had been betrayed by the USSR, and subsumed into totalitarian control. Goldstein's book, The Secret Underground Pamphlet that Winston Smith reads in 1984, is a basic explanation of the principles of socialism, and, by the time 1984 is set, the society which claims to be socialist has suppressed even this philosophy, in flavour of blind and slavish loyalty to the party. In case it's not clear, I really love 1984. In that book, the protagonist Winston describes Doublethink, which is how citizens are supposed to deal with the information that against the story they've been told by the state. You force yourself to forget it, and then you force yourself to forget the act of forgetting, and so on, and so on. The lie is always one step ahead of the truth. Stalin used Yugoda to purge the system of Zinoviev and Kamenev, and also Kirov. 
Then he uses Yezor to purge the system of Yagoda and his likely complicity in killing Kirov. And, spoiler alert, the poison dwarf will not die of natural causes either. It's very difficult for me to muster even the tiniest bit of sympathy for Yezor or Yagoda, but both must have known the full scale of the horror when it became clear that the purges were pinwheeling around to take them out. There would be no mercy for their friends, families or associates. Yagoda, perhaps sarcastically when he knew that he was doomed, told one of his investigators that there must be a god after all. After all, if Stalin was in charge, he deserved to be raised up for his loyal service to the regime. But if God was really calling the shots, well, he deserved his punishment. As Yagoda put it, look where I am and judge for yourself. In the Russia of the Great Terror, men sat in offices inventing elaborate confessions for Stalin's enemies, while other men sat in other offices writing elaborate confessions for those first men. The system erased all opposition, and then erased the evidence that the opposition had been erased. One of the most iconic images from this era is a doctored photo of Stalin and some associates. By 1939, Yezov had been removed from the picture completely. One year, the NKVD is singing your praises, literally singing your praises, and the next year you're being erased from pictures of you and Stalin. Enemies are not just defeated, but destroyed completely. History is not just suppressed, but rewritten. This was the ambitious goal of the Great Terror, and at its end, only Stalin and a few members of his inner circle survived. One of the important things to note about this is that Stalin made sure that all of those members of the inner circle that survived were equally complicit in the Great Terror. They all signed execution lists in their various regions. And when, after Stalin's death, Khrushchev denounced the Great Terror in the secret speech, there was a lot of arguing amongst Stalin's underlings because they had all been complicit and a lot of them felt like Khrushchev was trying to distance himself from something he'd been a part of. It's in the same way as ensuring membership of a cult by undergoing a murder together. The, the, the blood binds them together after this point. Now, one of the most important aspects of Yogoda's conviction is that in his confession, he implicated the next bunch of high-ranking officials who were going to be persecuted by the NKBD. These were the men of the Red Army. Chief amongst them, Marshal Tukhachevsky, who Stalin had long suspected of plotting some kind of military coup against the revolution. Again, with very little evidence. He was arrested, and Yezov was put in charge of his interrogation, and Yezov was not afraid to use physical torture as well as psychological. Perhaps we'll never know for sure what precise techniques were used by the NKVD to wring a confession out of Tukhachevsky. What we do know is that the confession, which still survives in the Soviet archives, was spattered with blood. Stalin saw spies everywhere in the Red Army. And by the end of the purge, 30,000 members of the armed forces had been killed, and more than half of the officer corps. The purge of the army and Stalin's motivations behind ordering it are one of the murkier areas of the already murky Great Terror. For example, Tukhachevsky and others were accused of conspiring with officials from Nazi Germany in a plot to overthrow the state. Of course, this was the standard accusation that was levelled to everyone, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Bukharin, everyone had to deal with it. But there is solid evidence that the Nazis encouraged Stalin's paranoia in this area, in the hope that he'd decimate his own armed forces. Reinhard Heydrich, the brutal head of the SS, had 32 documents forged to make it look like Tukhachevsky had been involved in a plot to topple Stalin. Allowing Stalin to discover these forgeries gave him all the pretext he needed to ruthlessly purge the Red Army. That said, I don't believe, and most historians don't believe, that Stalin was genuinely duped by the Nazi forgeries. It just gave him an excuse to do what he wanted to do anyway, and crush any alternative centre of power. Yet the purge of the army remains, on the face of it, a considerable gamble by Stalin. Tukhachevsky was a brutal man, but he was a brilliant military strategist who was beginning to understand what armour and aircraft would do to modern warfare. 
something that Hitler, of course, and the architects of Blitzkrieg understood very well. That was why they designed their strategy of lightning war that utilised fast movement, aerial bombardment, and armour above all else. There was no question that Stalin's paranoia caused him to weaken his own army considerably. All this while the state was being squeezed to maximise military production. Given that there was probably no realistic coup, and Stalin knew that, it seems like a misstep. What's clear is that Stalin the autocrat shines through this action. He was willing to weaken the socialist state, the Russian military, and cut down military leaders who could be helpful in their prime. All this in order to terrify people, to increase their loyalty. Stalin would regularly say that the only way to win was to were more terrified of their own side than they were of the enemy. And yet we can clearly see in this action that one of the flaws of dictators is that they often put a higher price on loyalty than competence. This will have its own consequences. There's so much to say in going through the Great Terror, so I've split it into two episodes. Next time, I will dive into the impact of the Great Terror on ordinary people, not just Bolshevik politicians in the USSR. Because of this horrendous purging of society, it was not just limited to the party. In the USSR, Stalin, Yezov, and the NKVD, they made themselves the common enemy of mankind. Thank you for listening to Autocracy Now. If you've enjoyed listening to the show, there's all kinds of things you can do to help, from telling all of your friends to following us on various social media accounts like Twitter and Facebook, visiting the website, donating to the show, leaving us a good review on iTunes. Any of these things will help the show, which is, after all, just me sat in my room reading books and talking about them. Uh, See you next time. Hello, and welcome to Autocracy Now. As part of our series on Stalin, today it's episode 7, The Great Terror. Part 2, The Common Enemies of Mankind. One sunny afternoon in 1937, a young girl, Marksena Mikhailovna, was putting on a puppet show for her friends. It was an afternoon's diversion, but friends and the parents of the children involved were all invited to form the audience of the show. She was 13 years old, and one can imagine trying to corral the younger children into learning their lines. In the end, the play was totally improvised because she couldn't get them to learn their lines, and picking and choosing which bits of the fairy tales to incorporate into the story. The stress and excitement of being a casting director and putting on a show, a child's fun and games. But some of the parents were less than amused and said that Mark Sainer must be an unfeeling brat to walk out on stage and perform, given what had just happened to her family. Mark Sainer was trying to distract herself and put a brave face on the impossible situation that she was faced with. Her life, as she knew it, had just ended. The day before, her stepfather, whom she called Papa, headed to a holiday resort and was arrested by the NKVD. Her mother, around 11 in the morning at work, had been arrested by the NKVD. Both of them had worked for the Communist Party in some capacity, and as a result she'd been able to live a middle-class, comfortable life. She was on holiday in Adaka with lots of other friends. But her middle-class, comfortable life was at an end. Over the next few weeks, she would return to her flat in Leningrad along with her younger brothers. And suddenly, she was faced with the fact that she had to sort out her own life. All of those little details that get arranged for you when you were a kid. Well, her parents weren't around anymore. She had to take care of those things. At the age of just 13, Marksena had to worry about how there was going to be food on the table that evening. Her parents were being interrogated. She smashed open her piggy bank and later arranged for some of the family furniture to be sold, just in order to buy bread. The NKVD would return a few days later and move her to another flat, another school. 
Luckily for Marxena, she'd had the wherewithal to pillage her own house for all the savings that her parents had kept lying around, and so she had enough money to get by, for now. Just a few weeks after that, she'd returned to school to find that her younger brothers had been taken away by the NKVD, to a children's detention centre. Marxena would try to send them boots and warm fur clothes for the winter, but she later discovered that the secret police had confiscated them all. The brothers remained shoeless. In the coming months, she'd write to her youngest brother, Vladimir, who had not yet learned to read and write. The only information she could get from the home about her little brother was that, Your brother has been in our home since such and such a date. No more than that, no matter how hard she tried, no matter how emotional the appeals were in her letters. The same younger brother, Vladimir, would later be conscripted into the Red Army, after a crooked doctor had added an extra year onto his actual age. Her other brothers would later be split up and shipped off to different districts in the USSR. Marxena herself must have slipped through the net in the administrative chaos. It's not clear whether the secret police even knew that she was living alone. A few weeks before, Marxena described how she lived an ordinary life. She'd occasionally hear in the schoolyard rumours that there were arrests and talk of enemies that had to be detained, but she never really believed that it would affect her life because... Like all these things, you never believe it will affect you until it does. A few short weeks later, her family had been systematically dismantled by the NKVD, and she was living off the money that she managed to steal from her own house. It would be 20 years until she discovered what had happened to her parents, and where they'd been disappeared to by the NKVD. She wrote to them, and later the KGB when they replaced them, every year, in hope of some information, still desperately holding out hope that they might be alive somewhere. This was hope that the NKVD encouraged... Their standard policy, when they weren't allowed to disclose what had happened to a person, or in the bureaucratic chaos they just had no idea what had happened to a person, was to say that they'd been sentenced to 10 years in a concentration camp without the right to correspondence. All over Russia, thousands of people writing to find out about their relatives received identical letters. Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, 10 years in a concentration camp without the right to correspondence. This was the answer Marxena received when she inquired about her parents. She knew they were innocent of any crimes and dedicated communists. It didn't seem fair. Only after Stalin died was there any closure for the victims of the purges. Their rehabilitation certificate said that both of them died of heart attacks on the exact same day in 1937. Marxena knew that this was NKVD code. Both of them had been shot shortly after their arrests. It took until 1989 for the Soviet authorities to admit the truth. Marxena was interviewed in 2005 for Fiji the Whisperers. You can read transcripts of her interview and others on his website, which I highly recommend. Even as late as 2005, there were Russians walking around the streets of St. Petersburg and Moscow with these kind of memories in their heads. This is what the Great Terror could mean to ordinary Russians. This is what happened to her. Stalin, who often gets quoted as saying, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths a statistic, was not just commenting on the fact that humans find it difficult to scale up empathy. It's a quote with a terrible ring of truth to it about how he ran his state. To me, it sometimes feels like we still haven't adapted to living in a globally connected society. The fact that I can type this in one country, and it can be read and heard by people I would never have met, will never meet, could never have met 500 years ago, this is an amazing thing. Some of my closest friends are people I've never been able to meet. But global interconnectedness strains our empathy. We can feel it for our friends, and we can feel momentary pangs of sadness 
for the case studies that the news throws up to us about the latest civil war or plague or famine. But we've all been in that situation, watching the news or reading about some distant tragedy somewhere, when we realise that this is stretched beyond what we can process, what we can digest and understand, and it's moved into the realm of the incomprehensible. For me at least, so often I'm watching these things and it just gets lumped onto the pile of very bad things. Our ability to empathise is saturated. And this is the process that Stalin depended on when he initiated the purges. So much bad stuff was happening, that empathy was saturated. Yezov, the puppet master, the blackberry, the poison dwarf. Later on in the purges, even his evil was incapable of keeping up with the rate of change of the purges. He'd become a tired, neurotic, alcoholic. Stalin himself would complain about Yezov. Montefiore quotes him as saying, Ugh, you call the ministry, he's left for the central committee. You call the CC, he's left for the ministry. You call his apartment and he's there, dead drunk. Another perjurer, Meklis, confessed his fragile mental state during the terror in an astonishing letter to Stalin. Meklis said, quote, My nerves did not stand up. I did not comport myself as a Bolshevik. These years take away from us a lot of people. This is organised bedlam which can eat up everybody. And it has eaten up people. In the last days I felt ill without sleep and have only been able to get to sleep at 11 or 12 in the morning. Forgive me, Comrade Stalin, for the unpleasant minute that I gave you. For me it's very hard to experience such a trauma. End quote. At the time, the man who wrote that was editing Pravda, publishing endless articles about how the traitors should be weeded out of society, and praising Yezov and the NKVD. You might remember from last episode, they were the ones who published that song about purging Russia in the Yezov manner. The reason they were under such incredible stresses was that they were operating machinery that was much like the industrial machinery of Stalin's five-year plans. Just as every factory and every region had its quotas for steel production or oil production, during the Great Terror, every region, every police chief, had their own quotas for enemies that they had to arrest and execute. Great death lists were compiled. Some of them were signed off by Stalin, who would occasionally go through and put little check marks next to the names of old friends. This intervention would be enough to save their lives, just a little mark in pencil next to your name on a list. This was the absolute power wielded by Stalin during this time. A tick from him next to your name was the difference between life and death. But it's wrong to say that everything was Stalin's fault. All of his magnates were involved in signing these death lists at some point, including Nikita Khrushchev, who at this point was running the Ukraine. For the party workers tasked with drawing up the quotas of the persecuted, the same rules as in the first five-year plan applied. You had to overfulfill your quota. If you underfilled it, or even just barely managed to satisfy it, suspicion would surely be on you. After all, Yugoda, who was the former head of the NKVD, had just been executed for being insufficiently quick at carrying out the purges and prosecutions of Stalin's enemies. And everyone knew it. So if the head of the police could be executed, who was safe? But how did you fill the lists? How did you find enough Trotskyites in your particular region to feed to this dread machine? Quite often, they used denunciations. Indeed, there were some people during this time who professionally denounced others. Montefiore describes how one woman denounced as many as 8,000 victims to the NKVD. You'd be there in the middle of a town meeting of your local communist party, and she'd stand up with claims that she could tell enemies simply by the look in their eyes. 
when local party officials tried to intervene in this insane series of denunciations because their friends were being caught up in it. She went over their heads directly to Stalin, and the officials were arrested. Of course, every ambitious politician used denunciations to get rid of their political rivals, preserve their friends, and just carry out whatever petty vendettas they wanted to. Ambitious young NKVD officers took pride in filling their quotas. Berrier himself had a quota of 269,000 arrests and 76,000 executions, and he exceeded both numbers so the quota had to be raised. Those who weren't executed were used as slave labour, so much so that the people who were in charge of these major public work projects like the Dnieper Canal and things like that, that was the secret police because they had all of the slave labour they could need. This is a fascinating, if sick, economic dimension to the terror that Robert Conquest and others have explored. Nikita Khrushchev, who'd later denounced Stalin's excesses during the terror, personally executed 55,000 people, a dutiful 10% more than his quota of 50,000. So what kind of thing would lead to you being executed in the Great Terror? <sighs> Almost anything. If you'd ever been, for example, a civil servant in the days of the Tsar, or associated with any non-Bolshevik party, or a member of the clergy, you were almost certain to be arrested. 85% of the Orthodox clergy were arrested in this pathological Bolshevik persecution of organised religion. If you were even a friend or a family member of a marked person, you were highly likely to be swept up in the purges, as happened to the brothers of Marxena. The intelligentsia, these are the doctors, the teachers, the scientists, academics... Anyone who was considered likely to hold views that weren't entirely socialist. Anyone who'd been exposed to non-communist ideas. These people were arrested and persecuted during the Great Terror. And in fact, one of the great diaries we have from the Siege of Leningrad, which will take place during the Second World War, is from an academic who lived in Leningrad. And she was caught up in the Great Terror while pregnant and uh, lost the baby under torture. And so you read her diary of... Um, her attempts to defend the city of Leningrad against the Nazis, and you think, this person is being tasked to dig trenches outside their home city to defend a regime that did that to them? I mean, you, you almost can barely understand what immense strain this must have put on the fabric of society. But so many of the people who were caught up in this maelstrom really had no political leanings at all. Whenever purges on this scale are unleashed and life becomes cheap, death swallows up a lot of innocent people. When desperate NKVD officers couldn't find enough people with a cloud of suspicion hanging over them to persecute, sometimes they just randomly select names from the phone books in the local area. Given that Stalin had ordered the persecution of foreign nationals, especially anyone who was German, who were, after all in Stalin's mind, the most likely to sabotage the state as a fifth column, simply having a name that sounded German, Polish or even non-Russian, was often enough to condemn you to death. And before we all feel too morally superior, we should remember that this kind of persecution happened in Britain as well, and there's the infamous internment of the Japanese-Americans under Franklin Roosevelt. NKVD orders throughout 1937-8 would systematically persecute people by nationality, moving from Germans to Romanians to Latvians, Greeks, Estonians, Finns, Bulgarians... Tens of thousands of people from these national groups would be killed for nothing more than being foreign. Another favoured tactic for filling up the quotas was making sure you chose married men with children. Married men with children, it was discovered, 
were the easiest to extract confessions from. The NKVD found they could save considerable time by getting them to sign blank pages at the bottom. The precise confessions could be filled in by an officer later. There's a wonderful book called Hammer and Tickle about Soviet jokes or anecdoti. I first found it in my college library when I was meant to be revising for exams, and so I had no choice but to read the whole thing. It's an amazing combination of Soviet history and terrible puns, so what's not to like? In these jokes, though, we see the resistance, the private discourse and grumbling that was the suppressed opposition in Russia. And we see that it was hardly a nation of fanatics or traitors like the official histories make out. Some particular jokes from the books uh, shed light on the terror. Three workers head to the factory one morning. One is five minutes early, and he's arrested for being a spy. One is five minutes late, and he's arrested for being a saboteur. One of them manages to be exactly on time, and he gets arrested for owning an American watch. Yet merely telling an anti-Stalin joke could be enough to get you arrested and sent to the gulag, or denounced by one of your friends and neighbours. The jokes themselves adapted to reflect this reality, like this one. Quote, Two prisoners in the gulag meet one morning. Why are you here? says one to the other. Oh, I'm here for laziness, the second man replies. Laziness? says the first. Did you fail to turn up to work one morning? No, says the second. I stayed up late at night, telling jokes with a friend. Well, that doesn't sound too lazy to me, replies the first, confused. The second says, well, I was lazy. I was going to wait until the morning to denounce him to the NKVD, but he denounced me that very same night. Or, for example, a law clerk in a Soviet court goes to his judge's office to hear the man laughing hysterically. What's happened? What's so funny? he asks. <laughs> I've just heard the best joke that I've heard in my entire life, says the judge. Well, won't you tell it to me then? says the law clerk. I can't, says the judge. I've just sentenced someone to ten years in the gulag for doing that. Every year the Soviet Union held elections with just one Communist Party candidate on the ballot. Refusing to vote was considered suspicious, so everyone did. But one Ivan Berilov protested the ridiculous nature of this by writing the word comedy on his ballot. He should have known that the ballots weren't really secret, as he'd been assured. He was sentenced to eight years in the gulag for this crime. His joke, however, was preserved, and you can still find it in the Soviet archives, although... I'm not entirely sure, given the eight years of hard labour, that he felt that his punchline was really worthwhile. Just as in the Nazi Holocaust, those who wanted to curry favour with the authorities and protect themselves from persecution would denounce their neighbours to the NKVD for something as simple as telling a joke. Idealistic children in the Young Pioneers scheme, which was something close to Stalin's version of the Hitler Youth, would sometimes denounce their relatives, friends, even their parents. Just as in Nazi Germany, parents began to be afraid of their fanatical children. Even discussing what had happened and who had been arrested was a really risky business. After all, what if you mentioned it to one of the people who was denouncing traitors? You could hardly say, oh, it's a shame that X, Y or Z turned out to be arrested. Young Marxena found that none of her fellow schoolchildren ever asked her about her parents, even though it was common knowledge that they had been arrested. Many were terrified of even talking to her at all, lest they also disappear. After all, her family had been marked as enemies, and you wouldn't want to fraternise with the enemies. Alongside the official quote-unquote legal executions, those who died in the gulag, where conditions were horrendous, the slave labour conditions, cannot be forgotten.
Beria would happily report to Stalin that the Gulag system paid for itself. A constant influx of new prisoners ensured this. Women who were imprisoned in the Gulag were raped as a matter of routine by guards and fellow inmates. Many of them were forced to take camp husbands for protection. Those who fell pregnant in the Gulag were occasionally released in special amnesties, but more often than not, their babies were placed in the same special orphanages for the orphans of the Great Terror, like those that Mark Sainer's brothers were sent to. Families were rarely reunited. I mean, why would the authorities even bother to keep track of the orphans? Jacques Rossi, who was in the Gulag, described his ordeal in the memoirs. The Gulag was conceived in order to transform human matter into a docile, exhausted, ill-smelling mass of individuals, living only for themselves and thinking of nothing else but how to appease the constant torture of hunger. Living in the instant, concerned with nothing apart from evading kicks, cold and ill-treatment. The conditions were harsh for everyone, regardless of the status or the lives they'd led before. They were now all tools of the state, completely without value. Professor Kozirev, who'd been a prominent astronomer and physicist before the purges began, laboured for eleven and a half hours, and commented, he said, quote, How far man still is from perfection. Just think, how many people and what great minds are needed to do the job of one horse. Being physically unable to work was no excuse in the gulag. The rations, barely enough to support people as it is, were reduced if you did not fulfil your quota. The result of this should be obvious. The weak would gradually starve to death. The gulag prisoners had a name for these people. They were called Dokodoiga, which roughly translates as goners. Increasingly emaciated, often offered no medical care or food, they would stagger on until falling dead in the snow. The camp guards liked to keep them around. They served as a reminder to the others of their fate if they did not work hard enough. Stalin and the more fanatical of his underlings were by no means separate from the NKVD and Yezov. A Stalin speech from 8th of November 1937 at the height of the purge gives you a sense of the foaming at the mouth that had begun at this point. He said, quote, And we will annihilate every such enemy, even if he were to be an old Bolshevik. We shall annihilate his entire clan, his family. We will mercilessly annihilate anyone who by his actions and thoughts, yes, thoughts too, assails the unity of the socialist state. For the total annihilation of all enemies, both themselves and their clan. End quote. In this, Stalin's policy was as much influenced by Leninist writings on the value of terror and the destruction of opposing classes, as it was by the old Russian leaders like Ivan the Terrible, who'd persecuted their boyars. Stalin would regularly say that Ivan's only mistake when dealing with his lords was not killing them all. There was an endless historical question with the Great Terror as to why Stalin initiated such a wide-ranging purge. To me, at least, it seems like there's a combination of genuine paranoia and brutality as a tactic at work. Stalin couldn't possibly have believed that everyone who was being denounced was really guilty. How could they be, when so often he wrote the charge sheets for them? But he did believe there were conspiracies against him. This paranoid nature happens throughout his life, and it's indicated by later purges of his inner circle. The mass purges from 1937-8, to though, seem to me to be less about destroying any specific conspiracy, and more about cowing the general population. During the Civil War, Stalin set fire to entire peasant villages to intimidate the rest of them into submission. In some ways, this was merely that policy, but scaled up to an entire country.
Stalin instigated the Great Terror, and surrounded himself with sadistic lieutenants like Yezov and Beria, who'd carry it out for him. The Bolshevik tendency to micromanage and bureaucratize treated this task the same as any other. Yezov even specified which type of bushes were the best to plant to cover up the mass graves. Stalin signed the death lists and the death warrants in so many cases, personally approving the names of hundreds of thousands for execution. But his inner circle should never be held free from blame. Many of them would ignore the names on the list of the condemned, and simply underline the numbers. To their dying day, men like Molotov and Kuganovich would insist that the terror had been necessary to strengthen the Soviet state before the Second World War. This is presumably the attitude you have to adopt when you've got so much blood on your hands. Nor should we forget that butchery on such a vast scale required a vast number of people employed by the NKVD to draw up local lists for each town, village and street, to extract and record the confessions of those who were attacked, to drive victims in lorries marked meat from place to place. To talk about a Soviet Russia without the terror, to talk about a Stalinist regime without the terror, is so far into the counterfactual that we can't really understand what it would have looked like. Trampling on the NEP, forcing workers to live in terrible conditions and fulfil fantastical targets, collectivising the peasantry, and generally attempting to repress and mould society in the fanatical, revolutionary way that Stalin did. This probably did require terror. That's the only way you could force people to do these things. When you read about the immense suffering that Stalin caused to people, and you think about the low power base that the Bolsheviks had initially, you question why they weren't toppled from power. But the huge machinery of the terror is probably a major reason why. After the terror had begun, it escalated in a horrendous cycle of violence. After all, every person who was arrested or executed turned another group of people against the Soviet state. The family of the victim. This, as much as anything else, was why entire families were wiped out by the terror. Every new execution, every overfulfilled quota, cemented Stalin's own paranoia and resolved that he had to stamp out these internal enemies, and they created new enemies. Yet the excuse that unity was necessary to win the Second World War, as well as being immensely cold and callous, is to my mind inaccurate. I also think that the idea that this was the culmination of the social engineering that was going to eliminate people who disagreed with Stalin and socialism. That's also not the main cause of the terror. That's more of a secondary motive, or else why would the slaughter be so indiscriminate and rely on quotas? Why would people who weren't necessarily bad communists be executed? This was about maintaining Stalin's personal power, not the unity or the social cohesion of the state. The year 1937-8, when the vast majority of mass killings and repression occurred, has been called the Yezovshina, the time of Yezov. Chances are that Stalin himself invented this term, and he certainly started using it in private very quickly after it was coined, to distance himself from the atrocities. Towards the end of 1938, Yezov's power was starting to wane. He was signing death lists that included many of his own protégés and allies. Just as for previous Bolsheviks, the persecution of your friends and associates was a signal that you would be next. In August of 1938, Beria became Yezov's deputy. Now, that is a terrifying thing for a politician. Beria suddenly being your deputy. You wouldn't want him snapping at your heels. Yezov probably tried to have Beria arrested, realising he was staring at his own replacement, but it was too late to outmanoeuvre him. As soon as Beria arrived in Moscow, 
he immediately began to indulge in his own favourite brands of political intrigue. He talked to others in Stalin's inner circle, warning them about being too close to Yezov. Yezov, for his part, tried to warn one of his friends, an NKVD chief in the Ukraine, that there was a warrant for his arrest. The man faked suicide and escaped, but this let Stalin know that Yezov had tapped his phones. Yezov, already deteriorating, lapsed into alcoholism, as Beria swiftly started to be the one signing his orders, and putting his own men in positions of power in the police force. Reportedly, Yezov, in a drunken stupor, ordered that all of Beria's deputies be killed, and then, lapsing deeper into drunkenness, that Stalin himself should be executed. There was no one left willing to do violence for him this time. His wife killed herself rather than being arrested by the NKVD on the 19th of November. Montefiore describes his last days of freedom as a sort of hellish parade of debauchery, Yezov using what little power and influence he still had to satisfy base and sexual desires. By the 23rd of November 1938, Yezov was dismissed from his position as head of the NKVD and replaced by Beria. Yezov was demoted to be the People's Commissar for the Waterways. It can't be lost on him that this was the exact same appointment that the former head of the NKVD, Yagoda, had had. The trajectory from NKVD head, to waterways, to arrest and execution, this was already well established. It was happening to Yezov too, and, despite all the people he had killed, and all the power he'd wielded, he was powerless to stop it. Beria and his cronies were in charge now. Yezov was kept around in a terrible condition for some years. Perhaps having him killed straight away was too obvious. But he was eventually denounced by Beria in 1939, arrested in 1940, tortured, shot. He quickly confessed to whatever crimes he was accused of. Like so many of Stalin's secret policemen, who later became victims, he was not afforded the honour of a show trial, where he might have exposed Stalin's role in the Yezovshina, and was instead completely disappeared from history. There's a really famous photograph where he was originally in it with Stalin and he's just been completely erased from that photograph in the official version that was published later. He was executed in secret with no announcement. Time magazine, as late as 1948, reported rumours that he was in an asylum somewhere, in one of the NKVD basements that he had specially designed himself. The floor sloped in one direction. It made it easier for the executioners to hose it down for blood. Apparently, when Beria's men searched his apartment, along with finding the usual trove of horrors that the NKVD men habitually kept, they also found some files on Stalin from pre-1917 that appeared to indicate that he was an agent of the Okhrana. And you'll remember when Stalin was a revolutionary, this was a big rumour that was going around that he really worked for the secret police. Although he could have been a double or triple agent, I suppose. Evidently, Yezov had been hoping to use this as insurance. It was a pathetic hope. The files did nothing to help him. It's kind of unclear how he hoped to use these documents anyway. I mean, Stalin would just say, that's a lie, and you would be executed. Stalin, for his part, was finally engaging in a degree of tactical retreat from the purges. By blaming Yezov for their excesses, in a way, just like when he said that those who'd collectify his farms were dizzy with success, he could exonerate himself. The lie worked, and for many years, a lot of people believed that Stalin was not as personally responsible for the purges, as his NKVD deputies like Beria and Yezov. Perhaps also, blaming Yezov for excessive purges signals to Stalin's own allies that they shouldn't worry. His inner circle, at least the ones who survived, can't possibly have spent all day signing death warrants for former friends without worrying that they would be next. 
By scapegoating Yezov, he might have tipped off a revolution against him. These men would now breathe a sigh of relief and remain loyal to Stalin. Stalin, as ever, was pragmatic in his tactical withdrawals from policy. The reality was that the Great Terror just couldn't be sustained. The levers of the thing were grinding to a halt. It had wreaked havoc with the economy and the internal functioning of the party, just by swallowing up so many people. He'd made his point. It was probably also important that he admitted that many of the arrests had been made wrongfully, and so it was necessary for him to pin some blame on Yezov. Not that Stalin actually cared. There's a wartime anecdote that I've been unable to find the original source for, but that Dan Carlin quotes in one of his brilliant episodes on the Eastern Front. A disastrous order results in the needless deaths of many soldiers, and a commanding officer muses, The important thing is that the order has been carried out, even if only one man makes it. Such was the same logic that was applied to the quotas of the five-year plan and the Great Terror. Waste was inevitable. Even missing genuine dissidents was inevitable. Chaotic, rapid, revolutionary struggle was what Stalin wanted, and it was what he got. That was his narrative. It's difficult to overstate the psychological scars that these years must have left on the people of the USSR. According to the NKVD's own files, 800,000 were executed, and more than 1.5 million were arrested. Everyone would have known someone who was caught up in the purges, and everyone would have been afraid that they could occur again, afraid of the knock on the door at 3am that could only mean one thing. Families, who had been destroyed and torn apart by the purges, were still not reunited, even when the Great Terror was over receiving only that familiar refrain, that their loved ones had been sentenced to ten years without the right to correspondence. The systematic political repression that the Bolsheviks had always undertaken was not stopped at the end of 1938, and Beria and his gang of sadists would continue to arrest and torture dissidents. But the indiscriminate killing and the mass graves were now limited in scope to specific political enemies. The Soviet Union would have almost two years of this before the Second World War started. Being born in the USSR around, say, the turn of the 20th century can feel like one of the worst fates imaginable. It's impossible, in listing the numbers and even in reading the personal stories, for us to understand the scope of the suffering. Reading about the terror has not been a pleasant experience. When I was 15, I visited the Nazi concentration camp Auschwitz on a school trip, and I remember one thing that struck me was how absurd, how stupid, how unholy it was that the sun was shining, that it was a beautiful April day, that the world dared to forget about the atrocities that had taken place here, that the birds still sang. Today as I write this, it's a beautiful day outside. I can hear the birds singing too, like George Orwell said in 1984. It can be such a hollow and beautiful sound. What made it sit at the edge of the lonely wood and pour its music into nothingness? And I felt then, like I feel now, that no good can come of this unless we remember it. It's our duty to read about these things, to learn about the consequences. Not just of autocratic government and dictatorship. Stalin was monstrous, but blaming him alone misses our own complicity as a species. In demonising some individuals, we exonerate the rest. In exonerating, we forget. And in forgetting, we lay the groundwork for repetition. This is not just the consequence of dictatorship but of ever depriving any group of people of their humanity. We cannot allow this to happen again. It will happen again. Next episode, I'll be talking about the build-up to the Second World War. Until then, be kind to one another. <laughs>